Welcome to the Rogue Bogues. This is the In Conversation series and I'm very excited to have um, our guest on today, someone who's probably popped up the last couple of months um, in a big way, at least in Melbourne, uh, Victoria and Australia. Even the world um, has done some stuff overseas with media and, and whatnot. Um, Real Rukshan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Great to be here. Yeah, it's been a, an interesting ride for you. Um, Look, we, we, I like to usually do background on, on everyone that we get on the show and, and kind of tell your story. And you have, you have a very interesting story, one of, one of somebody who, you know, um, Australians and Victorians should be proud of the journey your family took. Um, you're, right now, you're a professional photographer, videographer. That's your main, your main uh, bread or your earnings, as, as, as we say. Um, obviously an independent journalist as of late citizen journalist has really popped up and, and come into the mainstream you've, you've noted no real education or degree is needed for this role and I'll totally agree with that um, you like to engage a public to ch challenge mainstream narratives but what I wanted to get um, into a little bit was your family migrated to Australia in the early 90s as you were just starting um, primary school so give me a bit of background on that you settled in Dandenong which was where, where my family settled um, for the most part as well so we have some similarities <laughs> okay. there um, I was Dandenong and Endeavor Hills if, if you're not familiar but yeah, I'm familiar. Um, yeah coming coming back to you know coming to Australia did you, did you know any English at all just tell us about all, that whole journey and, and how it all went for you yeah sure so my parents migrated here in the um, early 90s um, I think 92 to be exact and, uh, you know, they were skilled migrants um, through my father, um, who went to a technical college in Sri Lanka. So uh, through that, we were able to migrate to um, Australia. I think one of the other picks was Canada, but um, we landed on, on Australia. So when I came here, I think I had just finished, uh, I guess, kindergarten in, uh, in Sri Lanka and uh, maybe prep um, from my memory. And just so... When I first uh, arrived, uh, I went to, uh, to uh, Dandy West Primary School. So my, my parents landed in Dandenong uh, when we got to uh, when we got to Melbourne, and uh, yeah, it was an interesting time. I mean, I didn't know any English, and obviously we went to um, English school here. Um, English is a second language, um, so that's kind of how I picked up English. And obviously, through grade one and grade two, you pick up these things pretty quickly um, because you know you just it's, it's you're in your formative years. And, um, yeah, so most of my life, I, uh, you know, young life, I grew up in Dandenong, um, around, uh, I think it's, uh, near Hemmings Park, if anyone knows that area. So around that area and, um, look, it was just, I guess, interesting because you, you kind of come into this, uh, uh, this, this town called Dandenong and it's just a melting pot. And, you know, my experience growing up was it was multicultural from the get-go, you know, it wasn't a, a shock. There was plenty of people that were also from Sri Lanka and India and uh, all parts of the world. So, yeah, it was a very interesting ex experience, to be honest, uh, going to primary school and obviously then high school in, in that area as well. And was it a case that your parents um, moved just simply for the better life? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm from the um, Sinhalese majority in Sri Lanka, and like you know, most people know, there's a civil conflict during that time in Sri Lanka um, between the Sinhalese and the Tamil people. I think uh, for us, um, you know, we were in, a, we were, my parents were more so moving uh, for a better life. Um, you know, Sri Lanka is a beautiful country, uh, despite the conflict. 
And, um, you know, a lot of my family, my extended family are still in Sri Lanka and, you know, I, I used to go back regularly. So it's a beautiful country, but I think the opportunities that were available to my, to my parents, um, you know, it's just not the same as um, what they would find in a country like Australia, particularly when considering, you know, raising, raising a family and uh, raising their children. So, you know, I think the main reason they did come to Australia is, is for a better life for us. And I, I know for sure that my, my parents made a lot of sacrifices uh, to come here because, you know, they've grown up in Sri Lanka their whole life. And, you know, my dad still to this day <laughs> would much rather be with his family and, you know, his childhood friends there. But I think they've sacrificed all that to give us uh, opportunities in this country, in Australia. And, you know, that's something that I'm, I'm very grateful for because I see the difference in my life uh, living in Australia as opposed to maybe uh, some of the experiences my extended family and my cousins and ha have had um, growing up in Sri Lanka. It's a very, very different world. And, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not always just about, uh, you know, having food on the table as well. It's about the opportunities that you have to do something with your life. And uh, I've been blessed in Australia to have, have those opportunities. And I think that's, that's something I'm very grateful for my parents for making that journey and leaving everything behind to come here to give us um, those opportunities. Yeah, no doubt. I totally agree with that. I think uh, most most migrants and most families that, that, that did that, the reward is not usually the person that does it, the, the mother or the father or the grandparents. It's usually the, the kids and the grandkids and that's spot on. I mean, um, I've had you know numerous opportunities that probably wouldn't have presented themselves mm. in, in the former Yugoslavia and Croatia if we were still there. And I think um, Australia, especially in the 80s and 90s, was just, you know, economically was booming. So so much was going on here. Of course, yeah. I mean, things have changed now with our reliance on China and whatnot, which, which we can get into a little bit later, but that's a whole separate topic. But mm. you, you didn't know you went to, to law school um, and dropped out. Why, why was that? I mean, the thing is, if you know kind of South Asian uh, families and parents, uh, the major driving factor, you know, when you leave uh, behind... Uh, your country and you come to Australia, the major driving factor is for them is, you know, education. Uh, my parents always told me like, you know, the, the main thing that you can do is educate yourself. And, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about anything else, just study and, uh, you know, do, do, do get your good grades and, you know, go to university. Uh, but the thing with the expectations within our, in our community is that, you know, going to university uh, doesn't mean doing like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just talking in the sense of what my parents would say to me, like doing a basic degree. They want you to do, you know, medicine, uh, law, <laughs> um, you know, those kind of um, those kind of degrees. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure as a child and growing through high school to kind of live up to those expectations. And I think a lot of South Asians listening and, you know, probably a lot of other people as well. I'm just talking from my experience, but they would relate to that. Um, you know, you kind of don't feel you're successful uh, in the eyes of the community and your parents uh, if you don't, uh, you know, end up somewhere like law school. So that was kind of my motivating factor uh, to aim towards uh, going to law school. And I was able to do that. And my parents were <laughs> very pleased when I ended up in law school. So, um, you know, they were, they were very proud of me for, for, for doing that. Uh, but I think, like I said, in Australia, you kind of, you see there's endless possibilities in terms of what you want to do uh, with your career. And uh, I kind of, that came to me a lot later in life while I was at university. You know, it's just, it just wasn't something that was working for me uh, doing a law degree. It just didn't fit into who I was as a person and the things that interested me. So I found myself, you know, distracted at university with 
things like cameras and things like, uh, you know, editing stuff and uh, things like, uh, you know, the arts and creative and creative things, which, you know, in, in South Asian culture, that's kind of the, that's the, that's the path they don't want you to go down, you know, the creative field, because that's kind of looked down, looked down upon in our culture. Um, so that's kind of, I think I took a step at university when I realized that it just wasn't working out for me. So I, I need to, to shift and do something different. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think it's a similar story for for most migrants um, that 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 leave for the you know the quote unquote better life is the the degree is the biggest thing they push on you. Is don't be like me, you know. Don't be don't be a laborer or or, yeah. or a skilled laborer or whatever it is. Don't use your hands where you you have to put your body through tough times. You know, be book smart. That's the way to go. And I think that's a similar story for all migrants. So, um, tell me about when you told your parents you were pulling out. How did that go? Oh, they, 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 they didn't really know for a while. <laughs> I kind of just, uh, you know, started, started skipping class and uh, just doing my own thing and, you know, working on my business and, you know, deferred here and there. Uh, I, I, like, I deferred because I thought I, it was something that I did want to finish. Um, but what I found was over time, uh, when my focus went elsewhere, uh, I just didn't have that drive to go back and finish. So my parents found out uh, slowly, very slowly, and you know, for a few years after, they kind of found out I'm not doing it anymore. Uh, I think even to this date, my mom will say to me, "You know, are you going to go back and finish?" Uh, so you know, and, and this was about, <laughs> and this was about, you know, uh, you know, more than a decade ago. So there is that, um, you know, for them, <laughs> they just want me to finish something like that. Um, but yeah, they they found out slowly. I couldn't tell them straight away. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, they just want you to finish it and they can get a copy of that degree and, and put it in a lounge room wall for when all the visitors come over, right? Yeah, that's it. You know, they they, they really wanted that photo of me um, in my robes uh, holding my degree and, and that's that was kind of, um, you know, I'm not saying that they're superficially thinking like that, but it's more so, you know, I'm the first of their kind of you know, extended family to go, you know, go to Australia, go to university, go to law school, and there's those expectations. So, um, that's why I had to tell them slowly that this wasn't my path. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. You, you just touched on the photography, videography, kind of editing, video editing, all that kind of stuff. So I take it this this was more of a passion of yours than it was a, a money maker or something that you looked towards. This is how I can make money in the world. It was more a passion project. And then, you know, obviously you reaped the benefits down the line. Would that be correct? Yeah, definitely. 100% passion. Like as long as I can remember, you know, if I'd always had like um, those DV cameras, uh, you know, those, those video cameras and filming things and, you know, cutting together little short films. So it was always something that was interest that was interesting to me. And um, when I was able to kind of um, pursue it more in a, a serious sense, like when I f- first bought my, um, my camera, for instance, um, and go out and to take, fo- take photos um, out in the world and edit them, uh, you know, it's something that I really enjoyed. And uh, turning it from a passion into a business, uh, that was kind of a, a bit of a journey as well. That it wasn't something that I planned to do. It just kind of happened, uh, naturally, if that makes sense. But, uh, yeah, it's just that, you know, kindred spirit of like just tinkering with technology and, uh, playing with cameras that kind of brought me to that, to that point later, later in my life. Yeah. And that's how we, we talk about that a lot with other other guests and, and even, you know, on the basketball series is, is if you don't have a passion for it, it's, it's much more mundane and harder to do on a daily basis, which probably was, you know, our parents at times with their jobs coming to, 
to Australia was they had to do whatever they could just to put food on the table and they hated the, their jobs some days. Whereas if you're doing something that's passionate, it's just so much easier to wake up in the morning and go and do it. And, and if you make money out of it and create a successful business, it's, it's just such a bonus. And, and this sounds like a similar story pivoting from, from law to photography and videography and editing. Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, it's it's interesting because uh, you find that if you actually uh, pursue your passions in a serious manner, uh, it can act- it can actually turn into something. And that was my experience because when I started doing the photography, uh, you know, I had no expectations of actually uh, making any money from the work I was doing. So a lot of the work that uh, I do back in the day was you know for free uh, to learn. You know, whether it's taking photos at friends' parties or, um, you know, at university events, things like this. So you kind of build up from there. And I think what pushes you to do that is purely passion, because if you're going from a point of view of, you know, making money straight off the bat and you have no experience in this industry, uh, it's going to be a hard, hard reality check. And I think I, I, did, I think I did it the right way when I look back now. Yeah, no doubt you would have learned the, the ups and the downs and the mis- made the mistakes along the way. And it led into, you know, focusing more on on weddings. Um, you're 11 years in, you, you work all over the world, which I found very, very interesting. I want to touch on that a little bit. Um, you've said in a busy year, obviously pre the shit show going on now, you, you do 150 to 200 weddings a year. You oversee 10 to 20 contractors. I assume some of those are based overseas. Um so, so break us down, you know, that business. I mean, you probably, which we'll get into a little bit later at the forefront of, of, of what, what, what's going on now is doing a small business, but tell us about, about that. Is that all correct? I mean, 150, 200 weddings a year. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a lot cause there's only 50 weekends. So I assume, you know, your contractors <laughs> are, are, are pretty busy and, and do you have contractors? Are they based overseas or are you sending them out from Australia? Uh, we're sending them out from Australia. Um, so even when we work overseas, we, we fly down uh, to different countries to work. But yeah, like when I, when I started, like I said, it started from doing, you know, you do your friends, you know, uh, 21st birthday, for instance. And then you find that friend gets engaged later down the track. So you do their engagement, right? And then you have a bit of a connection. So when they get married, they get you. So that's kind of how I fell into weddings. And after you do a, a few weddings, you kind of, it's one of those things you can't learn from school. I, I even did a stint at photography school for about a year and you don't learn these things about weddings and stuff because doing wedding photography or doing anything where you're interacting with people is just on the on the job experience you know talking to people and, and learning about how to um, how to get the best results um, from a, from a field like photography so that's how I kind of fell into weddings and it built up from there because you know word of mouth is a is a major thing in the wedding industry so you know if you do someone's wedding and they've got bridesmaids and groomsmen sometimes you end up doing their weddings and it kind of builds from there and this was on the uh very early stages of kind of facebook and um uh, facebook taking off so you had this kind of very social media element when you when you shared photos so it was almost like the old guard of the wedding photography industry was uh, being challenged by the the new guard who were on social media and you know you'd, you'd do a wedding you'd post up some photos on facebook and and that my generation that younger generation would start sharing those photos so that really helped us kind of um, expand you know very very quick time um, but with that uh, came a lot of uh, you know hardships as well because uh, it's a very uh, a very serious thing that you're doing, um, and I think you have to learn uh, from your mistakes and from your failures. So you know around client expectations, around expectations of couples, because it's it's a once in a lifetime 
once in a lifetime day and there's so much riding on it so you really have to be uh switched on and uh i think we persevered through all those struggles and uh through all those mistakes that we've made early on and that really helped us um uh, build our business even better um and being in the uh south asian community uh, you know the ethnic community i'm sure you'd know andrew like weddings is like a big thing right um in in uh in in south asian culture like weddings is not just one day it goes for five days so and uh it's it's an entire you know it's like um uh just to give people a visual idea if you've ever watched my uh big fat greek wedding it's pretty much like that on uh, steroids uh for an indian wedding for instance so um you kind of end up working like every single day um meeting people so it's not just working on a saturday or a sunday you're working from you know tuesday onwards till sunday and through that you meet people you build build your business you do word of mouth and 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 eventually it ends up being that actually people that are overseas in those countries like india or sri lanka or people that are getting destination weddings in um, you know thailand or fiji wherever it is uh, they would like your services as well in those countries so that's kind of how it, it it expanded in that way and obviously we needed a lot of help along the way so that's where all the contractors and um, the team came in to kind of help manage doing you know four weddings on one day um, uh, so yeah that's kind of how it expanded out very naturally very organically and uh, it's come to this point but obviously everything's kind of come to a standstill with what's going on no doubt i'll get that in a sec but it's just something interesting that you hit even for people out there that think you know wedding photography how hard can it be that there's there's a lot of pressure involved in that job if you're not prepared um well qualified well skilled if you haven't made mistakes in the past like you said this is a, a life-changing well not life it is a life-changing moment for the couple getting married but it's also a once in a lifetime moment to capture the right shot and the right vision and and you know with with females sometimes it's the right angle of their face that doesn't make them look xyz or whatever it is right oh, so yeah definitely i find um like wedding photography you pretty much especially if you're doing the photography side of things because you're kind of really coordinating with people you know you're amongst it uh in a very kind of you know it's a very happy day most of the time right but sometimes it's very tense moments uh, and it's tense moments between families and tense moments between couples or whatever it is. So you kind of have to play all these different roles uh, while at the same time also remaining professional and, you know, um, carrying on with your job as well. So there's a lot of things that are actually going on uh, during a wedding, which, uh, you know, makes you <laughs> learn all sorts of different life experiences. And uh, I guess to just touching on all of that, one of the biggest things that I've learned in Australia doing weddings is, um, and one thing I'm very grateful for is the fact that I've been exposed to so many different cultures, so many different um, ways that people celebrate love and come together as a family. And uh, as much as all these ways they do things are different, uh, one of the main things I've found is that almost everyone is exactly, exactly the same. It's just different ways of going about it. But people at the end of the day um, are very much similar despite which countries they come from. Have you done have you done any um Croatian or Serbian weddings by the way? Yeah, I've done Croatian Serbian weddings. I mean, yeah, growing up growing up, growing up in growing up in Danielong, so I had a lot of Croatian, Serbian, uh, Albanian, Bosnian friends. So I've done a lot of those weddings and and you know, that's a whole different uh <laughs> ball game as well. Like it's like a different kind of way of uh covering those events cuz you have a lot of uh, you know, I think I'm not sure I can't remember exactly from the Croatian weddings, but the drinking starts very early. 
food, food and alcohol from the morning. You have these like massive buffets in the morning. Uh, then you have like, you know, people passing around this little like uh, almost like a uh, like a bottle. And pretty, pretty much by the time you get to the uh, photo shoot and the um, reception, most of the bridal party smashed. Hundred <laughs> percent, man. They're, they're, you know, we've had uh, you need you need a full week to recover from those things. They're um, they're brutal. But okay, so lockdown hits early two thousand twenty. You are no better person or business small business owner than can break down what has happened over the eighteen the last eighteen to twenty months. Well, twenty months now. Um, what has happened to your business? Um, give us the lowdown as a small business owner from the, from the horse's mouth. Yeah, uh, I mean, when the f- lockdown first hit, um, I guess as a small business owner, uh, and everyone everyone was going through it, right? You, you just saw like the whole community was going to be put through whatever whatever, whatever was going to happen. So uh, I was very kind of um, you know ready to do my part as a small business and uh, and do the things that we need to do, which is basically to to shut our shut ourselves down. And uh, that was a roller coaster because I think that initial shutdown that happened. Uh, you know, the the number of calls that I fielded from brides and couples who had never experienced something like this before, uh, you know, they were just very emotional and it was just a very tough time and everyone was a bit unsure of what was happening. And I think as a business, um, you know, as a, as a, as a leader of, of my business, uh, even just dealing with the staff and kind of, you know, telling them that, you know, this is what's happening and I'm not sure what the future looks like, but, you know, we, we got to shut down and, you know, we all have to do that. It's we got to play our part. So the initial, the initial uh, reaction to 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 all this COVID stuff was uh, one of doing you know doing 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 your part for the country and for the state. And uh, I think I was very happy as a small business owner to do my part because uh, I felt like that was my my responsibility at that stage. Yeah, no doubt, and I think that's that's exactly most people's mindsets that are which we will get to the protests and get to people firing up um, down the track but I think everyone understood um, early on there was a lot of unknowns with the virus um, I was actually involved in a grand final series in the NBL um, we were in the middle of a five game series that was 2-1 in Perth's favor um, I was playing for Sydney and we called the series just because we, we didn't know the ramifications of, of traveling on a plane, how bad the virus was, the long-term effects. Mm. So I think that's very similar to, to what you've um, outlaid. I think people forget that um, what we're seeing now is, is a whole different phase of people's mentality. Um, but early on, people were really doing the right thing, at least for the first 12 months and understood that we, there's unknowns. So we're going to do the right thing in the community. I'm a small business. I need to kind of be a leader in my field or as an athlete, it's the same thing. And I don't think anyone really pushed back against that early on because of the unknowns. And I guess down the track now, we'll start to get into all of kind of the double talk by politicians, the hypocrisy. And I think that's where the frustrations hit. But um, as far as, uh, you know, obviously having to probably be a psychologist at times for clients of yours that are calling and in tears. And I've got a friend that's a, a caterer and, you know, he just a, mm. just a small example. He had a two three thousand dollar job the weekend before the Valentine's Day uh, snap lockdown with over three hours notice. So he had just prepped a whole catering function, and that can make or break a business. But but tell us your numbers over the last eighteen odd months, business wise. Um, what, what how many how many weddings have you done? Yeah. So when the initial lockdown hit, I guess um, that kind of paused off uh, most of the weddings we had coming up and. And uh, one of the biggest concerns for couples was, especially the ones that were coming up in, you know, in the months leading uh, straight after the lockdown was 
you know, they, they had spent a lot of money, right? I'm just talk, I'm talking from a couple's perspective um, because they had spent a lot of money because you put up, you put down so many deposits for your venue, for your photographer, videographer, flowers. It's, it's a massive thing undertaking that uh, a couple's do when they, when they start a wedding um, in, in, in this country. So at the start, it was more about reassuring people that, you know, we'll, we'll be there, we'll look after you, um, we'll do those things. And uh, down the track, uh, you know, it became a thing where, you know, the, the same couple, you're speaking to them again and you're pausing their wedding again. And, you know, I've had some couples where I've uh, rebooked or booked with me four or five times now, you know. The, I think the, the longest record that I have is like five times where they've actually postponed their, their wedding. And uh, in terms of figures for us, I mean, we lost, you know, normally... Uh, I don't have an exact figure, but uh, in terms of weddings, you know, at least, you know, 70% of our work um, throughout last year and the start of um, this year. And for us, I kind of looked at it as I can't blame the couples for what's happened. So I'm not going to hold their deposits and do things like this. So we had a policy where we would just, you know, if, if someone was... Uh, you know, cancelling, for instance, we'll just refund them in full. Um, if they were rescheduling, there'd be no penalties. We'll just reschedule with them. So for me personally, as a business, that's a decision that I made. Um, and that took a heavy toll on us because, uh, you know, we were just refunding left, right and centre as, as time went on. And and uh, I've, I've always thought that that was the right thing to do because a lot of these couples were just thrust into this situation. Uh, it's not of their own making. Uh, but there was a time, actually, uh, late November last year um, till about a uh, couple of months into this year where there were weddings still happening. Um, so the rules had relaxed a little bit. So weddings still kind of went back to some sort of normalcy. So there was a bit of work that kind of really helped us steady the business um, and, 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 and see ourselves through it. But I guess what I found was that what most people don't understand is, especially for a wedding business, uh, you can't just shut down. Uh, you've got to keep, you know, liaising with clients, obviously, from home. You've done weddings, um, you know, from the last last wedding season, and you're editing that work now. So you've got to continue to do that work. Uh, so you're doing all these things. You're still running a business, but the, uh, the support structure that you'd normally have from your own income uh, is not there. And whatever support the government is giving you doesn't actually reflect the, the needs of a business to um, to survive properly. So it took a lot of uh, sacrifice and a lot of hard work. And, you know, I'm still going through that process because I think the wedding industry will actually be the last industry that actually becomes uh, normal because, you know, weddings are the number one villain uh, in terms of government policy, um, weddings and funerals, I, I must say. But so, yeah, I think it's a long road still ahead for us in terms of our recovery. But, you know, the future, uh, I'm very... Uh, you know, optimistic about the future. And I think uh, the future is still bright because I think weddings must go on and they will go on. Um, so I'm not too phased about that. It's just a matter of uh, hunkering down and, and surviving. Yeah, there might be um, there might be underground secret weddings in Victoria for a couple of years, mate. <laughs> the way things are going, but maybe. But seventy percent. I mean, but look, seventy percent. It's it's no number to sneeze at. Um, you know, they're they're your rough calculations. I think most businesses, most people out there listening that own small business, even medium sized to larger businesses, a seventy percent drop in 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 what you're doing is usually a poison pill that'll, you know, you tread you can probably tread water for six months if you've got a little bit of a a surplus in the accounts most people have actually gone into their own personal savings to keep their businesses afloat i've heard many stories that 
um, friends of mine that own cafes that are, are keeping doors open to do takeaway. Now, people out there listening, these these places on takeaway where they can't let patrons in on a on a decent sized restaurant. I'm talking more than twenty seats. Um, they're all they're doing is paying bills and 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 keeping their staff employed, and they're generally draining their their savings um, on a monthly basis. You know, one percent at a time. So, it's a very similar story, and that's what's concerning with with all of this. But I guess you decided to pivot, um, and you. Uh, this is your quote that you sent me, and I'm going to read this twice because I like it. Not used to sitting at home and doing nothing. So I'm going to read that again. Not used to sitting at home and doing nothing. Now, um, I like that because I know I've got actually got friends that were like, "Hey, you know the." the um job seeker job job keeper payments have which, whichever one whichever side you're on um was was paying paying some friends of mine that i knew that were well, distant friends and friends of friends i've heard numerous stories i'm sure you have that the government was paying them essentially yeah. enough to to just stay home then go to work it was you know i had a, a, yeah. a friend of mine that owns a cafe his chef said hey can you get the job keeper payment give me that on top of the salary you're paying me and my, yeah. my my friends like no 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 that that's that's so you keep your job he goes oh well then I'll just I'll just I'm just not going to work for now I'll just sit at home and get the government money and he goes yeah but when this thing's over you're going to have no job I got to hire another chef he goes oh well I'll just go home and that's that's happening everywhere so I, I really like that quote um, because you, you know you're motivated to not sit on the couch and just drain government funds and, and do nothing and, and and cry yourself to sleep you're trying to trying to figure something out which is which is great which then led you to sign up to do a political science degree. Um, how is that going? Yeah, so just like my law degree, I dropped out. <laughs> so that's going good. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll explain that actually, because you know I tried the whole um, the whole Netflix thing, right? Like you sit at home and you watch Netflix, and you know it's this kind of strange time in the world, and you you got these press conferences, and you got all these kind of different things happening, and uh, you know like. In a, in a way, it's very different, right? It's like a new experience for everyone. And you're all kind of in it together and everyone's talking about it. There's a lot of chatter. So I tried, you know, I was, I was a part of that world at the start. And, you know, for me, it, I thought, you know, it's, it's, it's not actually working for me. And I thought this is a great opportunity for me to actually fulfill my parents' um, my parents' dream of finishing a degree of some sort. And I was never going to go back to law school. And I thought, you know, I'm really interested in, um, you know, global international politics and, um, you know, global studies, these kind of things. So I did sign up for a, a political political science style degree. And, um, you know, I did I did the I did the first semester in full. And even with that, I, I, I really enjoyed it. It was actually a really good semester. But I found that, uh, you know, online learning is not actually the same as actually going to a university. So that kind of made it a bit different for me as well. And at the same time, uh, that's when I had kind of pivoted towards doing, uh, sharing my own political commentary, um, you know, via social media. And uh, that was kind of getting a bit busy as well. So uh, eventually I had to decide whether I'd, uh, you know, when I go back to work uh, as a wedding, in the wedding industry, whether I'd continue to do my, you know, wedding, wedding work and uh, degree or whether I'd do my, uh, wedding work and you know my new political style com- commentary on on, uh, on social media, and, and I and I and I picked the um, doing the uh, political commentary via social media as the real Rukshan because um, I think I felt that I had these skills, I had these kind of life experiences, I've had I've had all these kind of you know just things within from around the community um, that actually informs my my views and my thoughts and 
uh, uh, getting a degree and doing all that kind of stuff might just bog me down in the same kind of mentality and mind frame that I had struggled with during uh, my time at law school. So I decided just to back myself and, you know, do it, do it on my own uh, without having that kind of, you know, background as of a degree. Uh, I, I, I personally don't uh, believe that um, it's as necessary uh, for the type of work that I'm doing at the moment. Listen, fucking spot on. You hit something there for me that was um, really, really important. Going to school and doing a degree in something is great because you become book smart. You know, you um, you can read everything and recite everything. Um, but living the experience that you've lived, that I think I've lived, and people can, disagree, can, can agree to disagree with this, it, it's invaluable and it's something that can't be taught in a at a university in a lecture online learning out of a book you just can't you can't learn um that real world experience and as far as your experiences of being a migrant um doing even just doing different weddings and experiencing different cultures and the way uh, people go about things you can't get that in a in a 10 year degree in my opinion and that's why I find it laughable when, you know, which we'll get into later is, is, is people saying, you're not a real journalist. What would you know? It's like, well, you know, <laughs> you, you put on your nice little um, Ralph Lauren polo or your little portsy outfit and your father's paid for that, that nice, shiny, prestigious school to do a degree. I'm taking the guy that's been on the street for four years experiencing it first because the degree, yeah, he's, he's going to know all the answers that the book told him, but that real world experience, you, you can't teach that. And I think you would agree with that, right? No, a hundred percent. I agree with it. I, I didn't understand that when I was younger and uh, I was in that mind frame that, you know, a degree and, you know, your ATAR and all this kind of stuff defines you. And that's kind of the world I grew up in. And, um, you know, in hindsight, I, you know, I tell, I tell my parents that I wish I straight out of school, I went to, went into the wedding industry. You know, I, I, I regret not doing that. And, when I talk to you know other young people today, um, uh, family friends and stuff, and I talk to their parents and about what their children are hoping to do and stuff, I always tell them like, you, there's there's no uh, you know there's no pathway that's set in stone uh, for these things. Like you can achieve so many things just from being out in the world and working and meeting people, and uh, that's just something that you can't learn at uh, university or TAFE or any college. And there's definitely a place for education system and there's definitely a place place for uh degree-based um learning and all this kind of stuff and you know it's very valuable to our community and our society uh but i don't think it fits the mold for every single person and i, and I think that's totally okay and uh we should start respecting people that actually go out on their own and you know whether it's build businesses or uh try different things i think you know it's a very kind of uh, uh it's, it's it's the way of the future i believe and you're seeing that more and more right you're seeing more and more people that don't have a formal education that are actually achieving great things um, with the resources they have in this country because uh, that's what it should be all about. Uh, you shouldn't be boxed into a uh, you know one pathway to to the rest of your life. And uh, I'm grateful for Australia for that uh, because I think that opportunity is not available everywhere, uh, but it is available in Australia. And and I feel like I'm someone that's taken advantage of that. No doubt, hundred percent agree. I think it's a it's a great story, and I'm not you know, for listeners out there, I'm not kind of just shitting on degrees, but I think there's, the, the, there needs, there needs <laughs> yeah. to be a balance. Um, and 
I just find a lot of hypocrisy in, in some of these people um, that, that, that label people with added degree saying, oh, well, they're not qualified. Well, I think they're more qualified at times. And that's, that's you know, you being sheltered at your Melbourne University and you've never left your bubble and, and that's all you've known and then you've got your degree. Well, well great. Well, give me some real life, real world experience. Have you traveled the world? Have you experienced different cultures? Have you... How does this thing X Y Z affect A B C? You know, that's that's what you don't get mm. out of just just reading out of a book. But um, yeah, you, you mentioned you obviously were doing political memes, photoshops, making fun of different things, um, having some unique takes, which I which I looked up and I'd been following you for a while. So it then piqued your interest to start reporting from the ground. Why? Look, I mean, there's only so. When you're doing these political memes and uh, all this kind of stuff, and you know, comparing commentary between leaders, and you know, it, there's, it's interesting. Definitely, it's interesting, and um, it serves some sort of purpose during these times. I think maybe sometimes it might be a bit of a stress uh, release for some people watching that stuff. You know, humor is always a good thing. Even kind of dark humor sometimes is a good thing uh, during stressful times because you know it helps us, uh, you know, cut through all the <laughs> all the serious stuff and maybe uh, take a lighter look at life, right? Um, but what I what I what I found was over time that I was starting to actually question, uh, really question, um, you know, some of the stuff that I was hearing in the media. Um, it just did just didn't make sense with what I was seeing out there in just amongst my inner circle of friends uh, in my in my community, and also just just online. Uh, there was a massive. It seemed like a massive disconnect between what was happening in the real world in in Victoria, let's say. And what was happening in the in the media sphere, where there was a certain narrative that was being built about, you know, um, how things are going, and that's why I kind of um, started to more so engage uh, in the public on the actual streets and uh, head out to these things because I wanted to see for myself uh, because I had I had also built up preconceptions about you know certain certain groups of people who are protesting or whatever it is, and um, I think for me I just just couldn't help myself. I had to go there and actually see it for myself uh, and, uh, you know, form my opinions based on, on what I saw. So that's how I actually ended up uh, working on, on the beat, on the street, as it were. <laughs> when you initially started, it was it was mainly highlights, um, it was edited footage. I think the best thing you've done, and a lot of people would agree, is you started doing the whole thing unedited. So for those not familiar, Rukshan does long live streaming reports of the happenings throughout, you know, the shit show of a time right now, especially mainly in Victoria. Um, you provide very little commentary, uh, a bit of a bit of a kind of National Geographic type narrative um, at times, just to narrate a little bit of what's <laughs> going on. Which, I, no, I think it's great because, yeah. you know, for people that are saying that this this has a narrative or it's slighted one way, um, it's it's live streamed unedited footage there's nothing more you can that you can't get more context than that unedited so i think it was a genius move by you because you know i feel the same way um i'm, I'm not i'm not silly enough to watch the news and see a 30 second clip of the protest and think that's what happened because it's a 30 second clip the narrative the direction that they want it to go it can go they have government knocking on their door they have they need access to press conferences of the government blah 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 so there's a lot of you know, almost collusion there where they need to scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Whereas these these kind of live streams which are then uploaded afterwards, the full version of them, I think they're genius. I think it was it was a no brainer to do. But um, how did you how did you figure why did why did you pivot towards you know going to full unedited unedited live versions of things? 
Yeah, I mean, I can take that back to my, uh, you know, time working in on wedding videography and doing wedding uh, film editing, because one of the things with a wedding is, you know, this goes for hours and hours, and then you end up editing it down to, you know, short little video, and, you know, it's almost like you're uh, the perfect propagandist for a wedding because you're taking this this day where all sorts of crazy things can happen, but you actually shape the the narrative of the wedding by what you selectively do when you're doing the editing and you know you add music and you add you know parts of speeches and things like this and you build this story and you know most of the time it's 90% reflective of what happened on the day but there has been instances where I've done weddings where you know it's it's not been like you know <laughs> the best of days but once we do the edit uh, you can't tell that actually ever happened right so an outsider watching that film uh, would have no idea and in in in, in much the same way uh, the media, uh, especially the news media, uh, they behave in this fashion. So they will go, they'll spend hours at these protests or whatever it is. Uh, they'll film bits and pieces. But on the editing floor, uh, they'll make decisions about how that information is going to be presented. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, they can't show you know a whole one-hour thing on the night news. But everything you're seeing on the news uh, in any form of media are decisions that are made by either an individual or by a corporation or, you know, influenced by a government or whatever it is. So people, I think, forget that when they're watching the news today. Um, they forget that it's actually you're being guided in, in, in the sense that where people want to lead you uh, in terms of a narrative, right? Whereas when I started doing that, you know, I noticed that as well myself. I'm going there, I'm filming these protests and I'm editing these shorter highlights. Now, for me, I'm trying to be very open and transparent about it and say, look, this is how I felt from the majority of the day that I witnessed. So I was there for a few hours. I've made this, you know, five minute highlight of this protest just to give you a kind of overall uh, feeling of what I felt on the day, uh, the key moments that I saw from my perspective, from my opinion. And I got complaints as well. People were like, oh, well, that's just your, you know, your take. That's just all selective. You haven't put this in. You haven't put that in. You haven't done this. And then I kind of thought, well, you know, if this is the issue, and I understand why it's an issue. I, I completely get that. I thought, you know, what better way than to actually just live stream uh, the entire duration of my time there as much as possible. And, uh, you know, there's only so much uh, you can, you know, edit in a live stream. Obviously, you can't show all the different perspectives, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's continuous, it's unedited, and it shows you, you know, the full, full time that, you know, at least that I was there. Um, documenting something before I make my highlights. So, yeah, I, I just found it a, a bit more of a more foolproof way to give people a, a bit more, you know, of a uh, honest context without without all the editing and, uh, you know, all the narrative changing involved afterwards. Uh, but I do, like you said, I do do some commentary as I go, and that's all only just to kind of set the scene for people uh, because, you know, people are watching, and I think if people thought I was just going to go there and point the camera and, you know, there's all these things going on, it's hard for people to kind of gauge exactly some of the things that might be going on in the background or some of the things that people in the crowd are saying. I think it's important to kind of interject that into the video just to give some sort of context from my my perspective. But otherwise, I, I like to kind of, you know, film everything in full um, uh, as much as possible and, you know, try to kind of capture the important scene at that moment that I'm there. Yeah, and it's hard to argue with the raw footage at the end of the day. Like people can can have their um, concerns about about what's going on. They might be for or against the pro protest. They might be you know in the middle. But when you watch the raw edited footage, there's you can make your own assertions as to what's happened. And to touch on your point about 
the narrative that news media sets. Look, I'm, 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 our family was a prime example of it. Like my father would come home from work at between roughly 5.30 and 6 every night. Mum would have dinner ready. We'd eat dinner at about 6 with the news on in the background. It was just what we did. We had the, I think it was Channel 7 was our channel of choice back then in the 80s and 90s. We'd watch Channel 7 News. And then we'd watch Today Tonight After, which I believe was right after back then. Um, and it, it really did shape our narrative on things. I, I still remember, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but you know when the water restrictions happened in Australia in the late 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. Um, was all over the news and and you know I think back then and this plays in part to why we're in uh, such a nanny state and dobbing on people I think this was done <laughs> this was done decades ago in my opinion and yeah. anyhow I remember all this yeah yes anyhow they had uh, I think you could water your garden and your grass it was like every off day it was like Monday Wednesday Friday you could do yeah. eight to eight to ten in the morning and four to six at night right. So I still remember like we'd be watching and they do an expose about someone is using too much water and don't do this and don't do that. <laughs> so much so that my mum, you know, our neighbor was watering their garden outside of those times and she's like, I should call and report, report the neighbor. And I, I thought back to that recently and I was like, you know, I don't blame my mum to an extent because it's so ingrained in her in what they've watched every night around the dinner table is like, I need a, I need a dob on my neighbor. And I'm like, I remember as a kid saying like, who cares? Like, if he waters it between eight and ten and 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 twelve and two, it, it makes no difference. He's still using the same amount of water. But oh no, it's the government rules. If he if I'm not doing it, he, you know they shouldn't be allowed to. And it really is, you know, now it's on steroids in what we see in society with with the whole, you know, oh my neighbor had his grandkids over for five minutes, I'm going to dob on him, you know. So just a very valid point with the way the news media can shape people. And and we didn't you, we didn't even know we we're being kind of led down a narrative back then you just thought the news was the news right where you know the more you dig and the yeah. more you mature you realize holy shit there's they, they have an agenda as well yeah i mean i i remember growing up in high school uh, i used to watch like interest of mine was watching documentaries and watching the news so i was an avid watcher of um cnn in my early days and i, I didn't realize that but it had actually um made me kind of very kind of pro pro war <laughs> you know i didn't understand at that time but Watching the uh, CNN during, especially the invasion of uh, after nine eleven and the invasion of Iraq, following that, uh, when when you watch these uh, these news shows, especially cable news, um, and American news has been you know doing this a lot earlier, I think in a much more uh, you know uh, bigger way than Australian media has in terms of how how far they go on the um, the propaganda style thing. But you know you can really shape someone's entire worldview. Uh, just through if you just consume that same news every single day that it can actually shape a person into what they think is right and wrong you know ethically morally yeah so that was happening for a long time and i think what really changed the game um very recently uh has been social media that's kind of really changed things up and news media is kind of you know being really challenged by social media and i'm not saying social media in the sense of you know, you know, ABC social media. I'm saying in in the sense of what you know you might upload or your friends might upload. These things just just a simple video clip uh, now is challenging these narratives, and I think that's why you're seeing all this pressure on censorship uh, to push for censorship, and that's why you're seeing governments kind of back off from protecting people's um you know f- uh, free speech and uh, you know protecting them against censorship and stuff online because they preferred the world where it was that kind of singular narrative you get from institutions that they controlled and uh, things have really changed a lot and I think uh, you know what what I'm doing what you know you're doing what many people are doing uh, as individuals uh, you know having these conversations and stuff this actually has changed and shifted so much 
the dynamic of uh, the media landscape that, uh, you know, we are better for it, but it's something that we have to preserve and, and continue to do. Continue to do. Yeah, and there's pros and cons. Obviously, you have some people as well on the other side that go, you know, even crazier with kind of, let's say, they, they, they're tweeting away or they have a view that, that sometimes it can be. Oh, sensitive. yeah. So it goes both ways, right? But Of course. One thing, yeah. You know, one I think thing, it's going to be balanced, though. Yeah, it needs to be balanced like everything. And and the news media, I think, is 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 probably the other way. They're, they're going to the extreme, the most extreme 30 seconds of a 10-hour protest, you know. But um, there's no better example of what you said um, with news media than the, the, the recent case of um, the gentleman who allegedly punched the horse. I'm sure you remember mm-hmm. that, that, that photo that was on yeah. the front page, not just a small article. His face was on the front page of numerous publications in Australia. Everyone that's seen it would agree, holy shit, that guy deserves whatever he gets. You don't punch a horse. But then, you know, a a regular citizen or a citizen journalist or just someone that has a Twitter account uploaded the full video and you clearly see, um, you know, the the, the police officer mounted on the horse was, 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 they were were kind of herding the people up with those horses and, and he got hit twice with the horse before he put his his hand up and push the horse's face away. And then you're like, holy shit. Like the media surely had this footage because they would add cameras there. They've gone down a, a narrative yeah. and, you know, then they have the balls to call independent journalists, conspiracy theorists. So um, yeah. I think you're spot on. It's, it's, there's always going to be someone now at any of these rallies that has a, has a phone with a camera on it. And I think mainstream media is definitely threatened by it because their narrative and whichever kind of view they want to, uh, portray is 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 now in some trouble if that small grainy even with a a 3g phone comes out you're like hang on a second and and mm. but then but then on the flip side these publications there was no retractions there was never any apology to this gentleman you know and um whether you agree he shouldn't have been in the protest that's a different argument but what he was criticized and slandered for basically all around australia and i think it even made it overseas daily mail and whatnot shocker um yeah. was was that he's you know, an anti-animal, you know, Nazi that punched a horse and you're like, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. So in the developing world, you, you see this thing where smartphones have really kind of changed the balance between, uh, you know, the, the ordinary everyday person and the government in terms of how, how narratives are built. The thing with Western, these countries like Australia, uh, is we we expect our media to be responsible. So there's an expectation that, these people that are coming on our nightly news or coming on our newspapers, you know, they're living in this kind of democratic kind of system with us. And, you know, they, they portray themselves in a certain way. So there's these expectations from the community that, you know, you kind of, you kind of give up a bit of your, uh, uh, you know, what you would otherwise might question something that they do, but because you're in this kind of, you know, democratic bubble, you're like, okay, cool. They have a platform, you know, the government you know, allows them to have this platform. So they wouldn't, you know, share misinformation, would they? The news wouldn't share something like that. But uh, what you're finding more and more is actually, even in uh, countries like Australia, the media is engaged in this type of uh, clickbait style propaganda. Now, I don't know if they're doing it for nefarious reasons or just to kind of sell newspapers and get eyes and clicks on their on their posts. But, you know, anyone, you, you can't just freeze a moment and then attribute so many different things to it and let that story uh, spiral out of control unless you are deliberately trying to, you know, either disinform or misinform people. And I think in that particular incident with that horse, uh, the media were well aware of what they were doing, but they, they just didn't care because it suited the entire, 
you know, the story that had been built up around these protesters as being, you know, violent and, you know, animal bashers and all sorts of stuff. Uh, that image kind of, you know, uh, signified that. So I think they were happy to go with that, not because of that particular incident, but because it helped them uh, portray the whole movement uh, of what happened in Sydney that day uh, through that one image. So images can be very powerful and, uh, and the media... Uh, definitely knows how to use them uh, uh, for for their agenda. So uh, it's just yeah, it's just hard to say whether it was an honest <laughs> honest mistake or it was uh, you know uh, something nefarious that they did. Yeah, I think there's probably a mix. I think there'd be good journalists out there that are just caught up mm. in caught up in what their bosses are saying. We, we see the there was the infamous leaked vision. I can't remember what paper it was that they were talking about, you know, label any of these protesters anti-vax and, and, and really hit hard on those on those catchphrases. And um, this was leaked by, by, by a, you know, a journalist. I think it was a daily, 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 I think it was maybe, I could be wrong, but maybe Daily Mail or something. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're just like, so there's obviously, you know, not every person that went to that, I would, I would argue the minority of those people were, were, were staunch anti-anything, There was which we'll get into too shortly. But yeah, they can... They can definitely get away with it because they have a bigger voice. They have government access, and a part of it is there are some good journalists caught up in what their boss says. There are some journalists knowing what they're doing. There are some news entities that that that, that want more government access. So, like I said earlier, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Oh, you wrote something negative about the government. Yeah, your, your press pass, your press pass for the the next Andrews Hollywood performance. Yeah, we, we couldn't get it printed on time, mate. You can't come in, and, and that happens. That's 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 the way. The world is, um, but you know, Australia is no different to a lot of these countries that we we we, we kind of lift our nose at at times historically about. Oh, look at the the carnage in, in parts of the Middle East or or parts of Asia. Well, we're that country now, so you know you got to call it out. But tell tell me about the time you you, you uh, received a a pleasant visit from um, from Victoria Police. It's well noted that you've got a, an in depth video. Um, thankfully, you recorded it to show the interaction, which was poor. But tell us about that. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, up until the time they came and visited me, I had been um, recording these protests and um, making my own um, highlights videos of what was happening and doing live streams. And, um, you know, they, uh, t on two occasions, um, they ended up, Victoria Police ended up at my house with a letter from um, the the deputy assistant commissioner, maybe Luke Cornelius, saying that you know you, you shouldn't uh, <laughs> show your face at the next one, uh, and you could face consequences. They don't say exactly what the consequences are, but you know it's 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 it's, it's along those lines. And uh, I found it very strange because you know all I had really done um, was just document what was happening, and um, I had been there working. Um, you know, I, I was very kind of switched on to the fact of what I was doing as well. So I didn't just transition from a wedding, uh, you know, with my wedding business and ended up going to protest, you know. I, I registered myself as um, as a sole trader um, doing uh, internet publishing and news media. So I kind of had all that stuff done and I had the permits and I was doing everything above board. So I found it very strange that they would, uh, they would come to my house and, you know, do these kind of... I, I felt like it was just trying to suppress information. Because what I had seen up until that point um, with the media, media police media crew there as well, and actual mainstream media, you know, these guys have a very you know charming relationship, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing. The media and the police have good relations, and they allow access and all this kind of stuff. But I think in a way, uh, it might distort the way the media uh, reports on these events and. I think the police are aware of that as well, possibly. So when you have these independent uh, media folks like myself filming and just 
everyday people filming as well. Uh, again, it's challenging that narrative, right? It's actually showing something that the police is doing that might not be actually right. In the heat of the moment, it might be okay, but when you look at it, uh, you know, you think that shouldn't actually be happening in our country. And I think the police, uh, Victoria police, really want to avoid those kind of um, those kind of videos and uh, photos uh, of them engaging in that manner, because you know they've been thrust into this situation where they're doing very kind of tough policing, and there's a lot of grey areas. Um, but you know that's the challenge that they have to to to, to, to deal with, and that's the challenge that's been put to them by the government. And you know the media should not uh, sugarcoat that by not showing those things. I think it's very important that you know people like myself are filming those interactions and showing people that this is what's happening because it might inform the way that police actually uh, you know interact with the public in the future and you know it's it's something that's required and I think that's the role of journalists journalists and it's the role of the media is to actually show a, a balanced perspective and uh, hold authorities to account as well you know act like the fourth estate that they're meant to be. Yeah, it's, it's bananas. I mean, I have a, a couple of friends that are police officers and, and the unfortunate reality is they even are aware of it that they're going to get tainted with the same brush, which happens in all walks of life, I guess. But, you know, I have a friend and I asked, asked him and I've grilled him about it and he said, look, man, I'm in a tough spot. I'm, I'm you know, my, my, my pension, my, my super, my salary. He goes, I'm not really, you know, I can't just jump into another workforce and, and learn a skill overnight. So, you know, sorry, sir, I'm just following orders. Um that's what mm. most police are feeling. Um, my friend mm. follows orders to an extent. He got put out on a few COVID, you know, related patrols where, he, you know, with the kids' playgrounds and that, when they try to stop those um, and, and close those down, mm. he goes, "Look, when I go down to a kids' playground, if I see kids playing, I drive straight past. I don't. I'm not. I'm not taking yep. the child off a of playground." And that's the right mentality. I think uh, people in the community appreciate that. And I had an interaction with. Victoria Police um, a couple of months ago um, in a similar vein where, you know, there was a lady yelling at kids on, on a playground. Um, you shouldn't be on it. You're the reason why we're in lockdown. This is to kids, man. Some, old, some you know, 50-year-old lady yeah. and the cops came and, and she thought that they were going to kick the kids off the playground and the cops told her to move on. Um, and I thought that was sensational because the kids yeah. weren't doing anything wrong. There was only three or four of them. They were all in the same family. Was it against these these? draconian restrictions it was but i think the police handled it perfectly and they told the you know the karen quote unquote to, to move along and that gives me faith that there is good police left and, and it's an unfortunate reality yeah. that there are a minority in victoria police that, that that do love these situations they love using force they love being the, the bigger man and you know what they need they need to be held accountable by their by their brethren by their by their um their team the other other people in victoria police be like hey mate like you know you're, you're making us all look bad like calm calm the fuck down and that's that's where we're at um because throughout this yeah you know the pandemic and whatnot is people at the end of the day become individual and selfish and like what about my mortgage and my bank account and look you can't blame people for that and that's that's the position the government has put everybody in Hello? Yeah, you there? Drop it out. Sorry, take start for a second. That's all right. That's all right. All good. Um, well, continuing on with the Victoria Police thing, how did that finish? Did you did you stay away completely? And was was the, did you get any um, advice from an attorney or whatnot, whether the, the document was legal and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, I spoke to, um, I got some legal advice. It was kind of very kind of um, vague, the document. So it wasn't anything specific. Like I had no idea ex exactly like why they had, 
um, targeted me, for instance. Um, obviously, they I, I just guess that they're monitoring social media and they somehow think that I'm associated or that I'm you know involved in that in that manner. Uh, that's kind of the the understanding thing that, that I got. But you know, when they came to me, uh, when they visited my house, I think that's when I when I realized that actually what I'm doing is really important. And, um, you know, uh, I shouldn't stop actually. Um, so, you know, it's almost like they emboldened me to actually take it even more seriously because, um, I felt that, uh, it was an assault on uh, our ability to, you know, have these uncensored, um, views of what's happening in our community. And, uh, you know, for me, it had a positive impact. Uh, you know, I was distressed at the time maybe, and, you know, I was uh, a bit caught off guard and maybe even, you know, angry in my tone, but at the end of the day, it had a positive impact on me because I realized then that, you know, it's very important that uh, people like me are there to, to, to document this stuff. And a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that what I'm doing is, uh, you know, uh, glorifying protest and all these kind of things. And I'm, you know, um, uh, you know, dissing the, the police and, you know, very negative towards the police. And I don't see it like that at all. And, you know, I feel like the police have a, have a job. They have a role to play in this. And uh, for me, when I'm when I'm there, I'm putting a putting a microscope on the institution of policing, and the government's approach to policing. Uh, it's not so much about the individual police and and what they're doing at that moment. I think we can learn a lot from uh, the interactions that are happening uh, between the public and the police. So, yeah, that's kind of why I decided I need to keep going because uh, you know these guys doing this to me now. It just shows me that there is something that, you know, possibly they're trying to hide and I want to see what that is and I'm going to go there and keep documenting that. Yeah, I think, look, you have every right to engage in the tone that you did. I mean, if um, you have police officers show up to your house when you've done something that was perfectly legal, you had all the relevant, you know, um, old school uh, Germany-type uh, papers uh, that were compliant. You had all your papers, you did everything legal and then to get a visit like that with that kind of tone um, from them, you know, coming to your place of residence, is, is it, can't, it's, it obviously was a, there was a sniff of intimidation there where they can, they're face-to-face with you, they're in uniform, they hand you papers, most people will shit themselves and that's that's a part of the ploy is to try and mm. get you to stop doing what you're doing and look, we've seen it we've seen it somewhat with recently, the, the Monica Schmidt case, which look, like I said from the start, people can agree or disagree with, with her kind of stance on things and what she's done but she was, you know, reportedly... Um, organizing a lot of these protests and involved in a lot of this stuff and 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 she got pulled over just driving her car um was basically mm. tailed by police dragged out of her car taken into custody and the bail conditions they put on this um on this young girl whether you agree with with what she's done whether you agree with um or disagree with it whether you agree she, she should be involved in these protests or not the bail conditions were bonkers that they wanted her to delete all the social yeah. media platforms her website um she's potentially going to be running for for, for for local I think local government right now and then working her way mm-hmm. up or state government. Um so she's formed a, a, a kind of a, a party around that with her website with she she claims, you know, thousands and thousands of subscribers and followers. They wanted her to wipe everything and and, and stop mm-hmm. stop doing this completely. And that's that's when we look at um calling ourselves a democratic society, that's that's kind of the the opposite. Yeah. And that's these are the countries, like I said earlier, about fifteen minutes ago is the countries that we've criticized and laughed at, you know, North Korea, you know, yeah. the Middle East, that that, that is exactly yeah. what they do and in, they engage in. We're doing the same thing here. The, the difference is I mean, yeah, people who disagree, I mean, disagree, people who disagree with Monica Schmidt politically are okaying it because they disagree with her politically. That's just insane. 
Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I take that back to like, you know, when the police came to my house, my I spoke to my parent, my like my parents saw the video and stuff, and you know, consistently throughout this time, uh, not not so much these days, but consistently at the start, my my mom and my dad was especially especially my dad, he'd be like, look. Uh, you know, I, I when I was younger in Sri Lanka, we were involved in this kind of, you know, doing this, you know, uh, doing this kind of protests and, you know, uh, talking about politics and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, you know, it's, do you want to do that? Because it's it's dangerous. And he's thinking in that mind frame from seeing what he's seeing happening to me in Australia, because he's just like, you know, back home, you're, you're a journalist and you kind of uh, contradict the government a bit too much. You know, a, a white van pulls up and you disappear. And, and 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 that's it and that's that's the truth of it and that's what hap- that's what happens in in uh, in many countries and I know and I know in Sri Lanka during the uh, the, the height of the civil conflict you had a lot of j- journalists and stuff who were trying to get out you know stories from both sides and both perspectives uh, facing the wrath of the government and the police force and you know everything the government and the police force were doing yeah it was illegal as per the laws that they passed or whatever. But does it make it right in a democratic society? And I think that's kind of the question that we're grappling with in Australia right now. So in terms of what's happening to, with what happened to Monica Smith and, uh, you know, her, her her treatment, for instance, you know, in a country like Australia, criminalizing something like, uh, you know, trying to organize a, a rally or a protest or, you know, discussing politics in a, in a manner which, you know, uh, tells people to kind of gather together and, you know, make a stand or whatever it is. Like, those are things which are uh, essential and things that are celebrated in a democracy. And right now we've been told that because of the Cho directions, uh, you know, democracy must be paused as well. Uh, and it's a very kind of strange time in history because the, the microscope is on us and we are acting in the same manner uh, as countries around the world that we condemn. For these actions but if you look at those countries and you talk to their leaders they will tell you well we're doing what we're doing against these protesters for our national security interest uh to protect the country to protect people so the arguments that governments give is always about national interest and it's above board and it's the law and we've just become like that as well uh with a very fundamental right which is the right to protest and uh you know it's very i think it's a very telling sign that you know, the it's like the emperor has no clothes. You know, for the West, uh, you know, we're not much different when it when push comes to shove. And I think uh, for a long time, from what we've gone through during this time, not just with protests and uh, all sorts of other, I think you know, I would, I would classify as human rights, you know, abuses of some sort. Uh, other countries will, you know, we no longer hold the moral high ground. You know, we no longer have that kind of superiority that we can call to um, in the way that we behave as a nation because. Uh, in many ways, we're no different, and you know that's just that's just another one of those unfortunate consequences of this whole COVID experience. I think we've kind of lost that, lost something about uh, what makes us, um, you know, a Western liberal democracy. Spot on. And what's funny about what you just said with your parents is my grandmother, um, who migrated from Yugoslavia. She's been on me um, a lot. She follows me on social media and said. Be careful, they'll come for you one day and your kids and this and that. So it's exact, it's amazing, you know, I I come from a culture in, in, you know, Eastern Europe and Yugoslavia and the Balkans and Croatia and and you're from Sri Lanka and it's the same messaging you get from your parents that I'm getting from my grandparents is because they've seen it before. They've seen that, you know, I've said numerous times um, in numerous, you know, publications and media that I've done is my my grandmother and my parents were getting borderline PTSD 
seeing this because they've lived this life and seen it. You try to explain it to someone that has never been part of it and they either say you're a conspiracy theorist, you're crazy, oh, that would never happen in good old Australia. It's mm. happening. It's happening to an extent and it doesn't It doesn't start big. It starts in small increments and um, I always urge people that if you think this is not comparable to socialism or communism or the brutal force of government um, that, that generations before us have experienced, is talk to some of those people. Talk to those people that whether they fled Cuba to the US or whether they fled, you know, um, the USSR or Yugoslavia or wherever, right? And they've, they've fled to Australia. Talk to those people's parents or grandparents and you, you'll get a pretty bleak um, understanding of mm. of why there is concern in the community. And, and But if you're, if you're a general, you know, Aussie from English descent that hasn't really experienced any conflict on home soil, I can see why they think, nah, she'll be right, mate. But you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a concern. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not right. Yeah, What's going on is not right. There's this kind of yeah. There's this kind of uh, mentality. I think a lot of people that it's temporary, and and I think look, much of it to be realistic is temporary. But what is not temporary is the way in which uh, people uh, you know uh, push back and react to these issues. So if you have a scenario where these kind of crazy things are happening in your country and everyone just sits back and like, oh yeah, this is all great and you know, this is fine and everything will go back to normal. Generally what happens is uh, governments actually, uh, you know, they they consolidate their power even more and things about society fundamentally change. Um, the, one of the best examples of that is during right after 9-11 and, you know, there was a lot of angst in the community and a lot of laws and rules were passed, particularly the Patriot Act. And what what we found later on down the track is that those laws and rules that were passed to, you know, to combat terrorism and stuff uh, was used domestically against, you know, Americans and to this day. Um, and that's had ramifications, uh, you know, in so many different um, parts of society in, in the United States. So when we see these things like emergency laws and governments being uh, given free reign and, you know, without having a parliament open and uh, amongst themselves, they're making all these rules and they're planning, you know, permanent uh, um, pandemic legislation and all these kind of things. Uh, those things, as just a general constituent of a country, should terrify you and make you uh, <laughs> arc up and you know really challenge uh, how those things are being done and you know for what reason and to what extent and is it justifiable? Justifiable and uh, one of the, uh, the most important things is is everything that's happening and is what they're doing actually proportionate? And those discussions aren't really happening. And you know in Parliament, there's only a few MPs that I see bring up these issues uh, and in, obviously you have all the activists and stuff deal with these issues but as, as a country as a nation um, particularly between our federal leaders and our state leaders they're not interested in these discussions they just think we just do everything that we need to do to see see ourselves through this uh, but you know the long-term ramifications they haven't thought about that at all no doubt and and people will continue to do that because there's that trust in government um Coincidentally, sports still on. This is coming from an athlete or a former athlete. The sports always, they've done their best to make sure the masses can have their beer on a weekend and tune out, um, which is exactly what they want. But, you know, there's that old saying that if, if you let if you let a government, you know, um, essentially trample on your rights and freedoms during an emergency, they're going to continue to, you know, create, create emergencies to continue to pass different bills and laws. And, and we're seeing that today, especially when you look at Australia, like we... I mean, what are we, 20 months in of, of, of the same plan without pivoting for most states and a prime minister has been, you know, he's disappeared for most most of this kind of tenure is, it's, it's just crazy that 
this I think they're I think Rookshan, I really think they're so far and so deep in now they can't they can't say they made a mistake and <laughs> look I think everyone yeah. makes mistakes you said it with your, your your business being a wedding photographer I've made mistakes as an athlete you make mistakes we're human beings admit your mistakes and improve on them but politicians won't do that because an election's coming up and I just think they're so deep into this now they can't go on oh, you know you know what like we can we can do X Y Z now, and people are like, hang on a second, why couldn't I do that six months ago? Well, I can go to I can go to a funeral now, but I've I, I you know my father passed you know let's let's say hypothetically a year ago I couldn't go, but now I can. What's the difference? The virus is the same, right? Yeah. So I think they're just in yeah. too deep. They're in too deep right now, and they just can't they can't get out of this out of these um, crazy restrictions they've put on now. Yeah, they've they've gone very deep, and they've taken the community along with them as well um, through their you know. I would say campaign of fear at times and through the media. So what happens is when governments go this deep is, you know, they can't even unwind it back if, even if they wanted to, because you have a whole section of the community. And I'd say there's a lot of, lot of people in the community, maybe even the majority of people who are actually uh, terrified of all the things that they've been told and, you know, uh, fed to them. And there, there hasn't been that balance provided by government. I think government during this entire time has, been irresponsible in the way that they've handled a lot of the things that have happened and uh you know obviously it's they're in a tough position and they they love to keep saying that it's a one in 100 year pandemic it's a global pandemic all that is correct but you can find plenty of examples from around the world uh in country in similar situations to australia where the actual governments and the leaders are behaving in a more you know (laughs) more realistic manner and they're taking their people on a journey which is not just all about fear. Uh, it's not all about division. Uh, so I think, yeah, definitely our, our leaders, um, particularly in Victoria, uh, have really gone into the into the deep end. And I think, yeah, they're, they're not, they're not going to walk it back um, because, like you said, it's all it's all it's all a matter it's all a matter of politics now. Everything's politics. The vaccine is politics. Lockdowns are politics. Curfew is politics. It's all politics. It's not about the person anymore. It's just it's just about what's most politically expedient or what will do the less least damage if they do something. Um, you know, based on their polling. So that's just what I feel like. But I, I think maybe you feel feel like that as well. And I, a lot of people I've spoken to feel that way as well. Whatever side of politics you're on, I, I can't understand how people don't see that. You know, it's it's clearly become one of the you know, the only virus in history that has political sides. And that's, that's what's, um, you know, there, there can be stuff you can learn from both sides of politics. There can be stuff you learn from both sides of media, left, right, conservative, whatever it is. And you got to kind of read, you know, there can be times what frustrates me is whether you're left-leaning, right-leaning, whatever, right? If there's something that's against your political beliefs that comes out, that is fact, it's just straight away labeled as, oh, that's that's left-wing nonsense or it's right-wing nonsense. Or it's like, no, no, but it's, it's true. It doesn't matter what publication it comes from or what side. And that's where we've got lost too, where you can actually have truths come out that are denied by the other side because it was a publication that's pro, you know, political side. So, but look, we can get into that forever. I want to get onto the... Um, the protest, uh, the the latest run of protests. So, obviously, last a couple of weeks ago, now it started. Um, I want I want you to break down, you know, go from day one. Um, obviously, the the craziest day was was the CMMU CFMEU demolition day, and and the march to the bridge was probably the, the mm-hmm. peak of it. But take me through day one and how mm-hmm. it built up. I want to know. Give us the pulse of the people there. Were they all right-wing nut jobs and Nazis and, and doing Nazi salutes as they were walking down the street, as as reported by our media? Were they all anti-vaxxers? Um, give us a feel for what you felt. Now, most people can watch the live stream and get their own feel, but I want to know, you were on the ground. Break it down for us. Yeah, sure. So the first, like, I got wind of all of this was there was actually a protest on, I think, the Friday 
uh, prior to the Monday protest at the CFMEU, which was that protest that was framed as a uh, against tea rooms because the tea rooms were shut down or something. So I, I went down to ch- to check that out and live stream that as well. And that day was just uh, you know all construction workers just from the nearby construction sites on um, on Elizabeth Street um, near the Flemington Road intersection, and they had just come out. Uh, to you know, have a lunch on the street because you know of an issue in the in the tea rooms. But even that day, I got a sense that it was more than just about tea rooms, right? There were people there that had uh, very serious um, concerns about the vaccine uh, in terms of the mandatory nature of um, the vaccine in the industry. So that was the first kind of inkling that I got there was something going on with with these workers. And then there was a freedom protest, uh, a worldwide freedom rally style protest on on that Saturday, which had nothing to do with the construction stuff, I guess, but there were some construction workers there, but that was more a part of a worldwide protest movement. And that had been planned for a while from what I've seen on social media. Um, and then the Sunday, not much happened, but then on a mon- on the Monday, I-, I got wind of the fact that there was going to be a, a bunch of workers gathering at uh, in front of the CFMEU building. So I headed down really early um, I think I got there around 8.30 in the morning. Uh, and it's only like a, from where I live, it's about maybe a 10 minute walk. So I kind of walked down and um, I went there and, you know, at the start, there was a few people milling about and I started getting some um, views and why they're there. And obviously they told me that it was, as, as is seen on my live stream, that it was, they were there against um, mandatory vaccination and uh, in their workplace, and and they were also there because you know they were unhappy with the way that they were being represented uh, by their leadership in the union, and uh, then throughout the course of the day, it just became this thing where you know people just kept turning up um, from other work sites in the city. Um, you know, I would hear hear them on their phone speaking to their friends, saying, you know, are you, are you guys done yet? Are you coming down as well? And you know, they'd come down. So it was kind of this kind of workers kind of get, getting together in front of their, in front of their union building um, from around the city. Um, and then obviously that built up to a, a few hundred and you know, possibly even more than that. And, and then you had the, the, the boss, actually, the leader of the CFMU, John Setka, come out and address the audience. And, you know, it was a bit of back and forth and, you know, union reps going up and, you know, these negotiations and, you know, them telling the, the workers that were there that, you know, we understand your concerns and so forth and and then it just got to a point where they said that they would come back with an answer within an hour and the workers were outside waiting uh, and it had tipped over more than an hour by that point probably about an hour and 15 minutes and during that time John Setka had gone on the radio and you know labeled these people that were out there who were in their hundreds now as uh, as as extremists and you know and all these kind of name calling and just dismissing their views and that kind of spread around the uh, the group group that were there like wildfire and it really changed the atmosphere um, you know until then I think everyone there was very kind of you know jovial in the sense they had music playing they were just hanging out with their workmates they had you know people were sending them uber eats uh, they were getting food they were eating um, and I think once they heard that uh, that kind of response where they were um, I guess demonized in a way um, on the radio prior to actually anyone coming out to speak to them, uh, that that kind of just um, took things to another level. And obviously that uh, led to some of the, the more nastier scenes that um, we witnessed that day with the um, uh, the fights between, I'm guessing, you know, delegates of the union and either union members or other construction workers. And 
the smashing up of the front of the building um, and all that stuff. And, you know, I just happened to be there in the in the thick of it at the front to um, capture all that as well. And uh, that's kind of the first time for me that I'd seen uh, a scene of that sort as well. And uh, yeah, it was it was very dramatic um, from my perspective. It, yeah, that, that and that obviously led on to everything else you saw over the next couple of days, because I think that really set the tone for at least the, the day after uh, when you had more people turn up um, and possibly turning up in, in support of the workers uh, based on some of the things that they had uh, seen on the news that day and some of the visuals that they had seen um, floating around social media. Were they just everyday non-tradies that went to Kmart to buy a high-vis vest or were they tradies in your opinion? Uh, they were tra- they were traders. I mean, I, I don't even know. If, is, is, Kmart, is Kmart open? These I don't know. It probably is. But on that on that Monday, uh, man, like everyone that came down, they were just coming from work sites nearby in the city, right? I think they had their work. They had been cut short as well that day, and um, you know they were they were in the city, and a lot a lot of the guys there were actual um, you know I'd say at least you know I, I'm again guessing here, but you know by the end of it, at least ninety percent of the people there were from. Uh, that construction industry and there were legit legit tradies or construction workers now whether there were actual all of them were members of the cfmeu i don't know for sure but the people that i saw engaging and engaging in the discussions and talking and yeah you know up the front and uh you know they all seem to know each other as as members so and they spoke with the passion of someone's people who were members as well yeah and it's look even if there was 10 people out of the thousand that were union members that had concerns they need to be heard your union is to, well, historically, it was always to protect workers' rights. It's clear as day that SEC is in bed with the Victorian government, the current Victorian government, Labor government. There's, there's, there's no doubt whatsoever. And that, you know, goes back goes back years and years and years. Um, but, yeah, look, it was, it was, it was disappointing that violence um, played a part, um, the frustrations. But, look, people that, that, that ask me, I'm sure they'd ask you, well, do you condone the protests? Like, why do you condone this? I don't, I don't condone the protests, but I'm not against them. And here's why. For people that have been stuck in essentially isolation for 18 odd months on and off, and let's be honest, even when the lockdowns weren't on, it, it you were still you still had the government thumb on your forehead, you know, limit restrictions to visitors at your home. If you're running a business, you couldn't have a certain amount of people, whether it's a cafe or whatever it is, a gym. So you weren't you weren't free. Um, it wasn't pre-corona free, right? These people have 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 endured mm. immense pain with small businesses. We spoke about what you've endured with your business, um, the, the the mental toll, suicide, kids schooling, the list goes on, right? These people have protested numerous times. Um, they've been battered down by police almost every time. They've been shamed by the media. What other alternative do they have? Um, the other alternatives I look at are the standard, well, just write a letter to your local councillor. Well, just go on the, on the government website and, and, and start a petition that gets 50,000 votes. Or there's, yeah. uh, I'll do a rant on Facebook, Instagram, or, or Twitter. It's like, what else can these people do? So people out there that yeah. are saying, you know, uh, screw, yeah. screw the protesters, it's bullshit, they're putting us all at risk. What do they have left? They've lost, they've lost yeah. everything. So that's that was my mindset of like, do I condone the violence and all that? No. Do I condone them ha- having their voice? I think it's appropriate in a democratic society, especially when everything I've just mentioned were the only other avenues these these people have. Yeah. Well, this is the thing, right, Andrew? Like, every day we hear this is a one one in one hundred year pandemic. It's a you know unprecedented time. So you have all these things happening which are just uprooting uh, the normal way that society goes about. So you know it's logical um, for me 
as a someone observing all this, that of course, during a time of distress, such distress as this, no matter the implications of you know uh, protesting and what that means for you know health or all these kind of uh, things, I understand all those all those complaints. But we're in this unprecedented time that we're told all the time that it's unprecedented. So. Of course, if not protest now, what other time would people be out protesting? So there is this, uh, you know, when people feel disenfranchised or when people feel up against it, uh, it's a very natural thing that you see people doing, which is going to the streets and protesting. Uh, you know, of course, no one um, condones the, the violence and those kind of nasty scenes, particularly violence towards um either you know property or members of the public or the police force even violence amongst each other in, in these protest movements well no one no one wants any of that uh, to see anything like that but you know what else uh, in terms of you know in these distressing times it, it makes complete sense that people are out there protesting because you know, you know if I was to give an example uh, there were people out there protesting when the uh, you know Taliban took uh, Kabul uh, women out there protesting and you know obviously that's a very dangerous time to, for people to be out there for all sorts of reasons but you know people protest and this has been happening all throughout history that when uh, you know people are faced with all sorts of certain odds where they feel like their voices are not being heard they usually do some form of protest now the thing is our leaders today are telling us that you know you can do that via zoom <laughs> or you can do that, you know, via, you can do that via petitions and all this stuff, like you mentioned before. And uh, that that's actually doesn't gel with the reality. These are the same people that are saying that, you know, they can't do parliament via Zoom. You know, that's kind of arguments that these uh, politicians are making. It's not the same. Well, actually, protesting via Zoom is not the same either. So they have to kind of uh, balance this kind of crazy things they're saying and then totally dismissing uh, people who, you know, are doing something, I think, which is just a human instinct um, during such a stressful period in their lives. Yeah, and I, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to admit, I know, I know some people that went to those protests, and I can tell you, um, they're not anti-vaxxers. That um, most of them were, are not Nazis because they're actually migrants um, or migrant families, and yeah. they, they were there. If you told me at the start of all this in April that they'd be attending a protest for anything, I would have told you you're crazy, and, yeah. and then they attended peacefully, right? And, yeah. That's the majority of the people there. They're with with everything. There's going to be extremists. There's extremists on the lockdown um, end of, of of politics, right? That where they there's people that want to lock down for the next yeah. forty years. Um, so it's there. There is a lot of everyday people involved in it, and, and and they're at their wits' end. And then look, this has been beaten like a dead horse. But you factor in the BLM rally, and the way that was allowed to proceed, they give us the bullshit about. Well, it wasn't the same stage of restrictions. Well, there was restrictions. There was density restrictions and there was crowd restrictions. Oh, they had hand sanitizer and masks. Bullshit. Not all of them did. So, you know, you look at that, then you see the police actually kneeling with them. Um, if, if that's allowed, that's where the government lost a lot of people. If that's allowed, then these protests should be mm-hmm. allowed. And I think the way these protests could be handled is if they're going to march down the CBD, cordon off the roads and let them march, then what? You know what I mean? They're going to yeah. march down. They're yeah. going to make their point. They're going to go home. But as soon as there's 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 antagonistic um, ploys by the public, by police, by politicians, even with the rhetoric that's that's said in in, in the uh, press conferences, John said could go on on radio. That's just fueling the fire, mm-hmm. and it causes a reaction. You're spot on. But it's just mind-boggling to me that 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 we're at this point where. 
okay, if, if you're protesting something that the government agrees with, which was clear as day with BLM, they can't hide behind they can't hide yeah. behind that fact. It was clear as day. It was I don't know what the density limits yeah. were. They might have been fifty, whatever it was, but there was thousands and thousands of people. Was it for a good cause? That's up to you to argue. Some will say yes, some would say no. But they I, I fight for their they have their right to protest. I've got no no problem with that. My issue was we were in restrictions, so by definition they shouldn't have been doing it. So now we've got protests again. And it's like, oh, no, these ones you can't do because we don't agree with what's being protested, the government. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I've, I've made some comments at the time back back in uh, when those protests happened, the BLM protests happened uh, against people protesting, uh, just out of spite for not particularly around the idea of protest itself, but because uh, a few weeks prior, they had the government actually had clamped down on it. And one of our first anti-lockdown style protests uh, in, in, in the state with arrests and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the media were uh, very much, uh, you know, saying that this is a very bad thing to be doing. But then obviously the BLM thing came along and uh, we're in the same situation, but we had this this entire apparatus of government, you know, uh, figuratively take a knee uh, and just let it happen. And um, which is fine, like it's the right to protest, all these things, that these are things that I, I agree with. But the manner in which they allowed it to happen and the, the, the tone that they took, uh, you know, it really kind of did politicize, uh, you know, ideologically that this is something that they were okay with, so they're going to let it happen. And I, I, I would, you know, I'm willing to put, uh, you know, money on on the fact that if we were in that same situation today and that, that, that kind of thing happened uh, in America and it was such a global phenomenon and there was going to be a protest of that magnitude and scale uh, this weekend in, in Melbourne, uh, it would happen and you wouldn't see the scenes that you're seeing. Uh, it, at the end of the day, it comes down to um, you know, what the government, like you said, are willing to tolerate in, based on their ideological um, you know, leanings. And it shouldn't be that way, but that's, that's how it's become. And to treat these people that are currently protesting at the moment against you know, mandatory vaccines or anti-lockdowns or for their freedoms or you know, Daniel and, against Daniel Andrews in the manner in which they're treating them, uh, I think it's, for me, uh, this is my opinion, of course, but, you know, it's almost unforgivable <laughs> what they're putting these people through because they're not criminals, uh, you know, they're not, they're not uh, terrorists, they're not, they're, not, they're, not, they're, not, they're, they're not in that frame. Uh, these are just, you know, you know, like you said, some, some people that you know, uh, your friends, your families, you know, people that have a different view to you, um, trying to express that in, in, in this way. And, you know, instead of uh, protecting those people and doing it in, in a safe manner, we're using the state and, and the police as an instrument of control because I've been to these uh, protests when the police haven't interfered and people will just march, they go around and then, you know, after a while they disperse and go home. So this kind of characterization that people are coming together to, you know, riot and attack the police and do all these things, uh, it doesn't actually gel with the, with the reality. Most of the time, the people there are trying to avoid the police um, and, you know, not trying to interact with them at all and if they just facilitated these marches you would you wouldn't have the scenes and the violence and all these things because yeah it just comes down to the fact i think they use these weapons they use these heavy handed tactics just to dissuade any future protests and you know just bad luck if you happen to be in their way when they're when they're trying to attempt to do that and for, for anyone listening um and if anyone has any other alternatives to what i've mentioned writing to your local Councillor or, or, or government or 
ranting on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, um, other than what these people are doing protesting. I'd love to know. I'd love to know any other avenues an everyday person can go. Now, let's remember one beacon for those everyday people once was the mainstream media and the news media to, to actually report what was going on and put pressure on the government. But it's clear as day that, day, that is not happening today. So I, I have no um, problems with the protests going ahead. And I, I think it's their democratic right to engage in those protests, whether they're wearing you know, stage one lockdown or stage 1000 lockdown. It, it really is there, right? Tell me about the police. Um, how did you, did you see a, a difference in the interactions from let's say day one or let's say the initial protests um, then coming on to day one to like day four or five? Did, did it, obviously it changed because we saw the guns come, the rubber, rubber bullet guns come out and the tear gas, but even just the interactions that you saw, it, it, I, I watched a fair bit of the stream. I probably watched 50 40 50 percent of it um and I, I noticed you know there was one that really stuck out it was there was a police officer behind um his convoy of um of officers uh, probably a sergeant or 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 a constable whatever of his unit um the come on boys come on boys you know and calling them calling them the c-word and whatnot um look that, that's that's clearly antagonistic and you know i'm sure there's a story behind why they did that but they're the police they, can, they cannot be antagonistic in, in in any sense of the of, of the word and the kettling the rubber bullets shooting people in the back with rubber bullets tear gas mm. what's your take with all of it i mean for me it, it, it seemed like the the tactics became much more heavy-handed yeah. as days went on yeah definitely the tactics have become definitely more heavy-handed and you know my my take is that at the end of the day you know the police and the government they have a higher responsibility to maintain a certain you know decorum in the in their behavior and that responsibility comes to them through the authorities that they have the powers that they have and the fact that they have weapons they have guns they have all these things that they're disposable so you know they i i hold the the pro uh, the police and the you know the government that you know uh, plans this type of policy to a much higher standard than I would hold a, a everyday member of the public who are, you know, there's a, there's a massive power imbalance there. So when you see the way in which the police are behaving with these people and, and at times being antagonistic, um, you know, and at times creating situations where the only outcome is some sort of stampede or violence, like once you kind of, you know, kettle or, you know, surround uh, a group of people, uh, you know, in their hundreds uh, from both sides with police, it, it, the natural reaction of people is either to submit, uh, you know, get arrested one by one uh, or to kind of, you know, get away from that situation because they don't want to be uh, placed in that position, right? Because, um, you know, it's a massive fine or whatever it is, whatever whatever reason it is, people don't want to be in that scenario. So once the police create this type of situation, then, you know, it's like it's just a matter of time before there's some sort of interaction between the public and the police. And that can often turn into something that the media would term as being, you know, riotous or violent or, you know, this kind of thing. And you would hear so many times in the media that, uh, you know, the police, you know, t 10 police officers are in, in the hospital and, you know, this kind of thing. And what I see a lot of the time is those kind of injuries that they're sustaining uh, could be uh, avoided uh, just by, you know, dealing with the protesters in a different manner. So, a lot of the 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 violence that we're seeing on on the on the streets is avoidable. Uh, I think a lot of protesters are getting hurt, getting injured. Uh, we just never hear about it uh, because it's never reported upon. Um, and it makes sense, right? If you have you know ten officers being injured, uh, who are uh, you know in, in a group of people who have authority, 
who are armed, who can protect themselves in a different way than what protesters can. Of course, you're going to have more protesters potentially um, injured as well. So we don't hear those. We don't hear that side of things. And I think the escalation, more than the escalation, actually, the the way in which the community is okay with what's happening. I find sections of the community, as as portrayed by the media, I think that's a very dangerous territory because these kind of things uh, should never never be okay. It's okay to condemn the people that are going out there and you know, uh, you know, call them names or whatever and be angry with them and yell at the TV and do these things. But uh, I think there should be certain limits in the way in which we um, handle um, protesters um, and in particular the way in which force and weapons are used, right? We had weapons being used at the Shrine of Remembrance. It's just I never thought I'd see a day that we had police officers, guns drawn on unarmed citizens. I don't care what they're protesting or doing. Yeah. I never thought I'd see the day in Australia. Yeah. And people, like you said, yeah, there's so you people to... that are cheering this shit on because of their political allegiances and I'm pro-lockdown and these people, the media actually selling that these, you know, we had a few cases of um, positive COVID tests from these protesters over thousands and thousands of people. They were also, sell, you know, they've mm. sold too many people that they're the reason why we're still locking down. Well, come on. No, no they're not. <laughs> no, they're yeah. not. You know, and yeah. I totally, yeah. you know, I just never 100%. thought I'd see a day of police rubber bullets or not the only step up from rubber bullets there's only one step up from rubber bullets <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it'll happen but there's only one more escalation you can get from that and we all know what that is on our own citizens is, is just i just never thought i'd see that day in australia other countries that like like we've said we we, we start we lift our nose at yeah you, you can expect it there but not in australia yeah of course and you know for me the first time i kind of saw these weapons being pulled out um you know it, it kind of did really um make me think twice about, you know, where am I? Is, is this actually happening? And yes, they're non-lethal weapons, but, you know, these projectiles can maim people, they can hurt people. Um, sometimes they're being pe fired into people who are fleeing. Just seeing those kind of scenes here um, really uh, puts into perspective, like, what this moment actually means. And to see people, like you said, that are cheering it on. To see the fact that, you know, our prime minister, for instance, uh, or other leaders, don't really address those issues. They address the fact that these people shouldn't be out there. They never really touch on like, oh, you know, this is a very dark day because, you know, in, in this country, we shouldn't be firing at people, you know, like these are things that we should try to avoid at all costs. Uh, those kind of discussions aren't really happening in the, uh, you know, in, in, in the media or amongst our leaders. It's more so, well, we did what we had to do and uh, the police are in a very tough position and I give them authority and I trust them to do what they need to do. Like, that's kind of the tone that's been taken. And, uh, you know, that's not reflective of, uh, from what I know, of my values as an Australian. That's not reflective at all because today it's these uh, lockdown protesters, these, you know, anti-government, whatever protesters, you know, next time it could be uh, people who are protesting, you know, for BLM or whatever it is. Like, you don't know how these things uh, shape out. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us, despite our allegiances to these different groups or what we think ideologically, uh, we should condemn this kind of, um, you know, I think is a, a abuse of um, uh, police power. Yeah, because it can go in any direction. The shooting in the back was an interesting one. I noticed that footage and that was, it was pretty disgusting on all fronts because I know... This is how crazy Australian law is and over-legislated it is. If someone breaks into your house, um, does something violent to you or a child, and you chase them out of the house and and and, and maim them, hurt them, potentially kill them, you're going to go to jail um, because you're 
you know, they've got their back to you when they were trying to leave. It's it's very similar in parts of the US as well that, um, you know, if someone does something to you and they're, they're, going, they're running away from you and you shoot them in the back or you punch them in the back of the head, whatever, you, you'll, be in, you'll be in some strife and you're going to get 15, 20 years in jail. Whereas cops, you know, they, they were, they, there was there's vision out there for people that, you know, they want to look it up. They were firing into a crowd running away. I mean, and I'm just like, mm-hmm. I don't care what the protesters have done at that point. Um you know, that was reactionary by police. They were obviously frustrated. They were on their feet probably more than they're used to being and had a long day, which is what it is. But um, shooting people as they're running away, you know, everyday people is, is, is just absolutely um, horrendous. And on the flip side is it's amazed me how quickly they managed to get police forces out in different parts of Melbourne during these protests because I know people that have had their homes invaded over the last five years. I know people that have um, been yeah. had their luxury car taken at, at knife point, gunpoint, whatever it is, um, and the cops sometimes don't even visit on that day. <laughs> like they don't even visit on that day. So, you know, that's 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 health and safety. That's protecting the the greater greatest citizen of Victoria yeah. or Australia. But when it's not political and there's not theatrics involved and it's not not anti-government. Um, I bet if a, if, if a, someone invaded your home and then wrote, you know, screw the government, then then the cops will be there within an hour. And that, that's that's the disconnect I'm seeing um, for everyday people that a lot of people don't see. And I, I know for a fact, like, you, you know, you're, you're, you're in trouble with, with, with some criminals. You know, the police ever rarely show up. And there's been times where they've shown up to robberies and, and these kind of things and kind of kind of said to friends of mine like what do you want us to do like just go you got insurance right yep you got insurance yeah but I, you know like the the pain my children are in mentally now they're scared this that um oh you've got insurance there's not much, not much we can do this happens all the time but you've got a you've got a, a protest that that wasn't violent at the start and, and you go into these tactics is just two different sides of the coin in my opinion Yeah, I mean, grow, growing up in Dandenong, I was uh, accustomed to all sorts of interactions with the police um, throughout my life. But, And I've been in similar circumstances where the police haven't shown up for a long time. And I think a lot of people share those type of experiences. And what we're seeing today is obviously this kind of really switched on uh, police force, you know, where they kind of react to things instantly and in, in mass force. And you would hope that um, even after we, you know, we get back to whatever normal that's been promised that uh, policing, you know, for serious crimes and serious matters uh, would be taken as seriously, right? Because I don't know, from my life experiences, I've seen uh, police take it really easy on even actual hardened criminals and to see them, to see them drop all, all, drop all that kind of rules and regulations which prohibit them from uh, you know uh, not being restrained in dealing with people um, under the under the protections that people have under the law to see them drop all that because of this uh, you know uh, chode erections uh, put forward by you know as far as I you know my, my opinion goes an un, 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 unelected uh, official a bureaucrat Brett Sutton uh, to drop all that pretense to drop all that you know that uh, that the value of the law that protects individuals and just kind of go roughshod on people, uh, <laughs> it blows my mind that they can do this just just based on that. So I would, I'm I'm all for uh, you know tough policing on actual crime, and whether it's gang violence or you know terrorism related to things or whatever it is, like tough policing is important uh, for a, for a community and for a society. But we've never really seen that level of tough policing that we're seeing today, which is against just helpless unarmed people. Uh, who are angry with the government. Like, this is the toughest policing that we've potentially seen 
uh, for for a very long time. Someone invades a home and they get shot by rubber bullets. I think that would be warranted. I think it'd be fine. Yeah. What you <laughs> what what is hilarious about that is the very people that are cheering on the protesters being shot would be against that. That is what that is where we're at in the society. They'd be oh the, you know the home invaders had a hard life. He um you know fell upon yeah. some tough times. He was doing it for the right reasons. He was scaring the shit out of your kids yeah. and, and, and mentally scaring them for life while he stole your Mercedes. That's fine. We shouldn't shoot them with rubber bullets, but mm. the protesters, yeah, well, they, they deserve the rubber bullets. And that's that's the disconnect and divide we have politically in our community. And, and then it goes on to people dobbing on each other and, and all that kind of stuff. I just haven't seen, I haven't seen a disconnect um, of this magnitude in Victoria or even in Australia ever in my life. And, and that's why that's why I speak out. That's I, why I, I'm concerned. I, I, and, you know, it's tough. Yeah. I think that's because... Normally, you don't have the government and the media pushing so hard for it. I think it's made people feel like it's okay to be this way. They've kind of got a, uh, you know, um, a base to go off. Like, oh, the media's saying it's okay to treat these people this way. The government's, you know, stepping up there and condemning these people all, all the time and treating them like they're not members of the community. So, you know, these people are almost like uh, domestic terrorists. So it's okay to treat them that way. And I think that's kind of how it's been framed. And uh, it's it's very dangerous because you know history tells us that that we should not accept those kind of um, labels and uh, portrayals of people and it can end up in a very very bad situation for for a community. Yeah, without a doubt. All right, let's get on to the mainstream hit job on 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 yours truly, <laughs> um, the Rukshan hit job. So. I pulled a few quotes, a few tweets, some very interesting ones. So let me get yeah. through all these and get your thoughts on them. The ABC did a hit job on you, basically saying you don't provide context. Well, I'll, I'll comment on that. I think a live unedited stream is in a fucking context. Um, <laughs> I don't think you can get much more context than that, especially considering the mainstream only edit everything for a one or two minute grab, if that, on a news telecast to create dialogue and narrative. Um, did you see, you would have seen the Eden Gillespie tweets about, uh, she did yeah. a nice little thread about you. I'll, I'll read through these for the listeners that haven't seen it. So it was a, a nice long thread. Fox News interviewed Real, Real Rukshan, prominent live streamer who attends anti-lockdown protests. He calls himself an independent journalist. She put that in quotation marks just to give it a little extra oomph. But he's notably popular among the anti-lockdown crowd and his live streams protesters have chanted his name and offered him donations. Rukshan claims he isn't accepting donations at the protest. He was praised while a Channel 7 journalist was attacked by protesters and doused in urine. Rukshan's live streams have reached 70k viewers. He's been interviewed by Global media as well as Australia's own Tria W. In this clip, he compares Melbourne to communist China. There is no mention of protesters smashing up a union building, protesters pelting uh, projectiles at police or the rioting that occurred on Monday. Only the police response is discussed. The role of live streamers in anti-lockdown protests is very interesting. Expert Elise Thomas told me earlier this week, protests are inherently performative and the way you see, you see performance these days is on your screen. End tweet, rant. Um, interesting final comment because inherently performative is what the mainstream media is and what our politicians are doing on a, on a daily basis. But um, yeah. I'll let you dispel that little rant of Eden's. Yeah, I mean, these, uh, I think they're kind of uh, triggered by the fact that I, you know, I've come on the scene and said that I'm an independent journalist. I think that triggers them because potentially they feel like they're more entitled to be in that position because of whatever, you know, um, it makes them, <laughs> makes them feel that way. And I don't think they're threatened, but they're triggered. Uh, and they look at people like me as, 
uh, we can be easily dismissed by these kind of threads. But what they forget is that I, you know I, I'm a member of the <laughs> the real world and I've got a lot of life experiences like we've discussed and I've got a really really thick skin and I come from a background of making memes and you know uh, laughing and laughing at myself and you know not taking myself too seriously as well. So these kind of attacks and things that these people are attempting, uh, you know, they don't really mean that much to me at all in the greater scheme of things. Uh, if, if, if the public uh, are happy to accept me as an independent journalist, um, then that's all that counts to me. And, and that's the way I look at it. So, you know, am I challenging these kind of mainstream narratives? It looks like I am because, you know, I find these people are being triggered by it. Um, and I think, I think that that's a good thing, right? Because they want me to provide context and do all these things that they believe that they're doing, right? That's their perception of what they're doing. See, I, I'm very realistic. I understand that I'm only coming from, you know, my opinion and my perspective, and there's only cert, cert, certain things that I can do. Um, you know, I don't have access to politicians and lawyers like they do, right? But I have access to people uh, on when I'm at the protest, for instance. So I'm showing that perspective, and... I'm fully aware that I don't operate within a vacuum. Like, you know, there's all this other information. So I'm just presenting one source of information from myself, uh, from, you know, the live streams or my highlights videos or the posts that I make. And to counter that, the mainstream media, they have access to, you know, lots of funds and lots of resources, put out their information, official sources and all this kind of stuff. So there can be a balance there. And I think they don't want there to be a balance. They just want people to take it all from them and take it from their narrative and possibly these kind of independent live streams and these kind of things threaten um, their ability to sell these narratives uh, when people have access to you know my information as well I think that's that's got a lot to do with it their reactions I think the 70k viewer thing was what really hurt them um, when most of their you know press conferences with your Andrews and your Gladys and all that's getting less than a hundred um no sorry less than a thousand uh viewers but yeah i mean it's just it's just a tough it's tough to read when people just go with with the smear um straight away and you just you just always scratch your head straight away as soon as that stuff comes on the other thing i would say is if, if they're, th they're so threatened about your live streams guess what they can do they have so many forums channel 7 channel 9 channel 10 sbs abc they have facebook pages instagram twitter they can upload the whole live stream from their very own lenses we all know they yeah. have they have they have cameras parked on the side of the road. They get their own little special cordoned off media area that Victoria Police protects that we've seen on on your live feeds. They can have a camera sitting there. They can still do their edits for the two minute news clip or the one minute news clip, but then upload the full upload the full uh, protests of six hours on your Facebook page. That's what I ask of mainstream media then, because then at least you you're holding yourself accountable to your edits. Then you know, hundred percent. And I think uh, you know I've I've said that previously as well like you know they should just they can compete very easily they can destroy uh people like myself doing this kind of thing but they're not willing to because it actually uh you know diminishes their ability to control the narrative because what they're afraid of most is that something will be said on camera that you know dispels everything that they're feeding to people on the night night news later on so they they can't control those kind of narratives so they're very selective in what they show people and the great thing about the internet and you know live streaming is that you know people like myself can provide that provide that balance and these these um media companies um should just they just have to deal with it now and that's just the way it's going to be i think into the, into the future as well uh the more that they push back against 
people in independent media, uh, the harder that they're going to find because people are going to gravitate towards sources where, you know, you'd think it's almost boring sitting there watching something for five hours, right, on a, on a mobile phone. It's not polished. It's just like a live stream. It's all over the place sometimes. But people actually sit there and watch it because it's real time. It's happening. It's it's it affects their lives as well potentially, and it's it, it's capturing a moment in time and history that um, you know is important. So people are happy to engage in that medium, uh, whereas the news thinks they can just kind of rewrite everything uh, after the fact, and uh, that's I think that's the struggle that they're facing today. Yeah, especially when there's a, a backed up live live stream of it available to for people to you know spend time. And we know redditors and people that have a lot of time on their hands will find find the lies pretty quickly. Another one that I found interesting was: Did you see the Joanne Ryan, the Layla MP? Did you see her? Yeah. <laughs> this, this one amazes me. Um, for everyone listening and for our international listeners, late. Um, from the Labor Party, um, they're supposed to be for the everyday person. Um, I'm not going to lie, our family were probably Labor voters um, early on in our time in Australia. Um, and retweeted that post from, um, what's her name, Eden uh, Gillespie, and just wrote the wedding photographer in quotation marks. And I saw that and I, I, I reposted it. And it's just it's just disgusting because that's her constituents and her, her voters are everyday working people so she's trying to diminish the fact that you're just a a lowly wedding photographer you shouldn't you you know do, being a journalist like um, good old Eden Gillespie and other journalists is a hard job that you have to get a degree for you're you're much below that Rukshan you shouldn't be doing it and you know it's just disgusting that a politician could even utter that um and and that that thankfully got absolutely hit out of the park she got blown up and, and got mm. a lot of uh, negative comments abuse um, all that kind of stuff and i think it's deserved because it was a very very poor poor tweet trying to you know label you as, as, as essentially a nothing compared to the great old mainstream media mm, yeah i mean i took a great offense to that tweet not so much personally but also just in general, because, you know, like we've been discussing today in my life, I've ex met people that have come from all walks of life uh, who have achieved great things and, you know, um, have great insight into into what's happening in our world. And to diminish the the working class like that, to diminish people based on, you know, their, their job role or what they're doing uh, as, a, as a job, uh, to say that they're not worthy of being a part of this debate that somehow that, you know, you have to re reach some sort of elite level to be allowed to uh, engage in these conversations. Uh, I think that goes against everything uh, of what it means to be Australian, to have these kind of values where we tell people that, you know, the battler, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you can, you can achieve something, you can do something great. And to have a politician uh, try to denigrate uh, my profession and something that I'm very proud of doing, uh, does actually, yeah, it goes to show you how far these politicians have actually fallen in the way that they no longer connect with people in the community who are, majority of them who are a part of the, the working class. No, oh, just a massive, massive, massive disconnect. Um, it's just unbelievable. They don't even see it. That, that's that's the amazing part of it all. But um, we'll finish off with your, the hit jobs. I mean, numerous other you know, publications, um, conspiracy theorist is the first thing that, that, that you get. Um, I've, I've been labeled that numerous times, um, alt-right, um, sympathizer, all that kind of stuff. I mean, for me, the, the thing probably for you as well, being a migrant, 
um, is is uh, I'd be probably if I was alt right, I'd probably be the first one of the first people that would get kicked out of the country if 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 I was pro alt right. You know what I mean? Because they they wouldn't want wogs. Yeah. They wouldn't want wogs here. They wouldn't want someone from Sri Lanka here. <laughs> so every time I get yeah. labelled uh, far right Nazi fascist, I always have a little bit of yeah. a, a bit of a giggle because it just doesn't doesn't fit the narrative for me. But anyway, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's just comical that you're labelled these things. I think I think anyone that speaks out against the mainstream. I mean, my Wikipedia got updated right after that rant I made about about being offered money to promote um, lockdowns and stay at home. Oh, Someone okay. updated my uh, Wikipedia and put conspiracy theorist claims this was said, <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it all it all relates yep. back to a Pizzagate tweet I did, you know, many moons ago. And yeah. um, it wasn't to do with the Clinton part; it was to do with the the pizza shop. And just said, oh, <laughs> if one percent of this is true, you know, this is this is crazy. Yeah. I said, if one percent of this is true. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, that, that's a mistake I made back then, not knowing, uh, you know, obviously it was blown up in the media at times and not, not reading into it too much. So I got caught up and I happily admitted that, but that, that's what they circle back to, you know, almost six years ago and something that I said, if 1%, um, and similar, similar with you and similar with most people that speak out, they'll, they'll try to, they've dug up tw- old tweets of yours. They tried to, um, like you mentioned yeah. earlier, the BLM, when you were criticizing that, they were saying, oh, what's different about it now and, and not creating context or narrative around it. They're just trying to smear you and put that tweet up on a screen. And it does look bad if you, if you just see that tweet of yours saying, you know, why is the why is the BLM going, going ahead? And then circle a year later saying, I'm, I'm, I'm following these lockdown protests. That, oh, that's a hypocrite. Yeah. But without any context, of course it looks that way, you know. So um, just interesting yeah. that the, I mean, the I, way I, it's I, gone. Yeah, I find it like, you know, lack of a better word, I find it all very lame and, and silly. Uh, these kind of gotcha, gotcha things that they're trying to attempt to do and these kind of labels as well um, that they're trying to put on people like myself. Um, you know, I, I, I'm fully aware of the fact that I am, you know, a bit, a bit more conservative uh, in terms of my political leanings and certain views that I have. And, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed of those views. They're, they're all available uh, publicly and um, I don't hide from the fact of who I am. Uh, and I think it's uh, for a lot of people, they've always found it hard to reconcile my ethnicity with my views. Uh, they feel that I should be, you know, boxed into a certain category. Uh, but what, they, what they're missing is that actually I see myself as, you know, fully Australian. I've, you know, grown up here. I've all my values and things that uh, dictate my views uh, have come from my education here and, you know, my life experiences growing up in this country. So when I have these, you know, conservative views that I have, they don't come from, you know, some mysterious alt-right influence or some, you know, crap like this that they're trying to frame it as. That's actually just who I am as a person. And just because I am, you know, uh, you know, brown-skinned and ethnic and from a Sri Lankan background, they think that's some sort of, you know, I'm so, you know, I'm so misinformed and so brainwashed that I'm so weak as an individual that I can't come come to my own conclusions, you know. That kind of rhetoric is just, they claim to be fighting against, but they actually perpetrate it because they're not allowing me to be the person that I am being uh, without saying that it's because of some weakness that I have. Uh, actually, no. And they don't get it. Like, they don't understand that, you know, I'm going to use the term, yeah, ethnics like myself. We come from countries that are sometimes, you know, more conservative. Uh, we, we, like, these values aren't new to us sometimes. They're just an extension of our experiences and our upbringing and the values that our parents give us and all these kind of things. So just because they don't gel with the victim mentality, you know, that's been pushed on um, immigrants in this country at this stage, you know, this kind of work culture that we're a part of where immigrants are co-opted into 
these battles that actually they're not <laughs> something that we're all interested in. Uh, just because you don't participate in that, you're all of a sudden, oh, he's a you know alt right, uh, you know conspiracy theorist, that kind of thing. It's just absolute nonsense, and these people should be uh, very careful in the way that they're doing these things because it's not just me. I can tell you now that there are so many people that I know uh, from various ethnic backgrounds that are not the way that they're being framed in the public, and they take great offense to the way that they're trying to be co-opted into all of this stuff and. You know, I'm speaking out today um, and sharing my voice and it comes with a lot of consequences I know for myself and for my business and from the way that I'm portrayed and the things that are said about me. But, you know, I'm I'm prepared to, to be in that space and to deal with that. But there are many out there that are afraid still to speak out, but they, 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 they share some of the same views that I have as well. So this labeling of people like me, I think it's counterproductive and they're just, they're just misreading the room, um, as it were, at the moment. Yeah, it's it's okay to it's okay to disagree, people. Yeah, hundred percent. Like challenge the ideas, challenge the ideas, challenge those those things. You know, like that's they kind of go to the very bottom of the barrel and they they do personal attacks instead of actually challenging challenging your ideas. Well, the people that are against uh, labels and being labeled, labeling people always always get to laugh out of me because it, <laughs> you you see it all the time. You t- you touch about the abuse and stuff. Have you have you death threats anything like that or been, been okay yeah uh no i've copped death threats um and uh that's like you know you just gotta kind of rise above that uh copped uh, a lot of abuse uh some a lot of it's kind of like that racial abuse like you know uncle tom type thing and uh i think i think people I, yeah like i said I, I yeah i think people are just people are just really confused that there are people like myself who are outspoken about values um, in this country, which you know, are trying to be, I would say, certain uh, parts of the the community are trying to uh, you know work against, fight against, and people like myself are defending those values because we believe in them, and that's fine. We can have those disagreements, have those arguments, and and fight it out. But I think the the the, the level that they go to <laughs> to label me as something that I'm not, yeah, just it just shows how weak they are, and um, it's it doesn't affect me. Um, and I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. Yeah, and I think you're on the right path. When whenever you get those kind of comments, um, I, I got them. You know, I was I was a youthful wog at one point where I played the part um, as a young fella, and as soon as yeah. I stepped away from what I was supposed to envision myself as and portray myself as, I was kind of spat out, and 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 I was you know brainwashed by living in America or a conspiracy theorist, and it's just it's just comical. One one quick one for you: um, was the was Skomo really watching the live feed, or was that a Photoshop job? No, no, no. I think he was watching because I've seen the um, I've seen all the the screen grabs and everything, and even um, some some of the video recordings and and because uh, you can't get that blue re- the that like that tick the verification type thing that they have. So uh, it's definitely you know from Scomo's office at least. Whether he's watching it or not, I'm not sure, but definitely uh, from his office. But uh, let's just imagine that it was him actually watching my live feed. Well, it wouldn't surprise me that our prime minister wasn't smart enough to set up an alias account to watch the feed. That definitely does not surprise me <laughs> whatsoever. Um, I guess finishing off, are you going to continue doing doing the stuff on the beat on the street, um, even when even when this shit show in Australia is hopefully one day over? Are you going to continue with that, or are you going to kind of go back towards knuckling down with the wedding business? Or as you said earlier, do you have time to do to do both in a hybrid? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm going to continue doing it. I think um, you know I've. Um really found it's something that uh you know wedding photography the wedding business 
that was definitely a passion of mine and it continues to be. Uh, but this kind of relates more to me at a personal level as well in terms of my you know, interest in um, political commentary and just kind of looking at the state of the world and being involved in those things um, in the way that I can. And I, th I feel like there's a role for independent creators like myself, independent media, independent journalists. Um, you know, I'm not the first and there's many before me and there'll be many others to come, but I think it's an interesting space to be in and I, I'm really looking forward to kind of um, seeing where it takes me and, you know, what, how, how else I can contribute to uh, to the community and, um, you know, challenge certain mainstream narratives and things like this. So I think it's an interesting space. I think our world is obviously in a very uh, interesting situation at the moment and, um, you know, in, into the future, uh, we'll be dealing with the repercussions of what we're doing today. And um, I think there will always, there's always something, right? There's always something that we need to discuss, we need to talk about, we need to unpack. And and I think, uh, you know, independent media um, has a useful role and, and a very important role uh, in, the, in that process. I think everyday people um, agree with a lot of what was said on this podcast, I think um, hopefully it gives you a, a nice little boost and you continue to put out some great videos and, and hold our um, government accountable. So thanks for joining the Rogue Bogues in Conversation series. Really appreciate it. And we will uh, catch you next time.